On the Empire Podcast this week, Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio return with the controversial The Wolf of Wall Street. We tackle the Oscar nominations, try desperately to ignore the Razzies, and we speak to Juliette Lewis and welcome the wonderful James Purefoy back to the pod booth. All that and much, much more coming right up on the only movie podcast that contains the F word 506 times. And that F word is Fliberty Gibbet. Fliberty Gibbet. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. You see, at long last, I figured out the right emphasis for that, so people don't go, "Uh, oh, there's meant to be more after that." But no, that's the right way to say it. Really? Okay. It is. It is. Um, first up's our geek queen, a lady so hyper intelligent she can finish the Daily Planet crossword during her lunch break, and that's not easy. It's compiled by renowned intellect Jimmy Olsen. It is, of course. Helen O'Hara, hello. Hello. How are uh, you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I do prefer the uh, Daily Bugle crossword, but, you know, the, anything, any port in a storm, obviously. What's a Daily Bugle crossword like? Um, it's easy. <laughs> I like easy ones. Okay. Uh, and next up is our art house guru, a man who's just compiled his very own Ingmar Bergman crossword. All the clues are down. Really, really down. It's Phil Disemlian. Hello. Hi, Chris. That would be a down word, surely. Hey, you weren't here last week, but there was chat of um, whether I was learning Polish so I mm-hmm. could watch the Three Colour Trilogy. Uh-huh, yes. And I pointed out there in French. At Philip Boratin, and I'd like to name check him, uh-huh. um, on Twitter tweeted me to say that actually Three Colours White has whole segments in Polish. And then he helped me with my, because I'm learning Polish. That's my, my thing for this year uh-huh. on the podcast. Okay. Um, and uh, That's your said, comedic riff. Pozdr- yes. Pozdrojan okay. i pol- Polisk. So I've learned that. I don't know what it means yet. <laughs> you can barely pronounce it. What it you, you don't probably, know what it means. Okay. You've probably said I think it means regards, unrepeatable. I think it means regards from Poland. Oh, oh that's so lovely. Or an anagram of the Empire Podcast. You should learn Polish and French using that cracking new app Duolingo that I've been addicted to. It's replaced QuizUp in my affections. I'm currently learning French. And uh, let me tell you, it's not facile. Oh, très bien, très bien. What? Uh, Anyway, last but not least, is a ladies' man, man's man, man about town, who makes us all sound so good, because he's the editor of the podcast, Ali Plum. And Ali, I'm guessing when you're editing this podcast and cutting out all the bits where we mess up, you've, uh, you've got a <laughs> few cross words of your own. Am I right? How delightful. Speaking of bits where we mess up, we're letting it all hang out on February 25th. That's right. We'll be recording our 100th podcast. 100 podcasts. How the hell did we make it to 100 podcasts? And to mark this most momentous of occasions, we'll be doing it in front of a live studio audience at the Prince Charles Cinema in ye olde London town. We'll have the usual big-name guests, there'll be quizzes and giveaways, and the usual irreverent nonsense from a bunch of giggling idiots. Uh, tickets are on sale now, just £5 a pop. You can't go wrong there. And to snap them up, just go to the Prince Charles website, www.princecharlescinema.com. So there you go. But first... We'll be giving away a pair of tickets every week on the show in the build-up to the, the big event. To stand a chance of winning, simply answer this week's ridiculously easy question. Phil, mm. what is it? What's my favourite Ingmar Bergman film? Okay. Is it A, Casablanca, B, Die Hard with a Vengeance, or C, Wild Strawberries? Ooh, that's, that's a, a tough one. <laughs> that is a tough one. <laughs> I'm stumped. <laughs> I'm stumped, to be honest. <laughs> Good luck like with that. It's like, like one of those questions on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. The winner trip to Australia. Where is Australia? <laughs> is, it, is it A, on Earth, B, Krypton, C, Falcon? Who gets these things wrong? I don't know. It's I think it may be a trap. <laughs> it's clearly Casablanca. Uh, okay, send your answer. Uh, along with your name and your contact details to podcast at empireonline.com and if you don't live in London you'll have to make your own way here for the live show so bear that in mind if you live in Australia or somewhere even further afield 
like Krypton or Falcon. Okay, on with the show now. We have readers' questions aplenty. At Barry T. Ryan, who asks, If I stumble upon Shawshank on TV, I have to watch it all the way through. What films Shawshank you? (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. It's a good question, I think. It is a good question. Um, I'm guessing he means which films do you watch all the way through once you stumble upon them and not which films imprison you for over 30 years until you... Well, I'm not going to say escape because that would be a spoiler. But uh, yeah, Ali, what about you? What films Shawshank you? Zoolander Shawshanks me. Yeah. Anchorman Shawshanks me. Most recently, Sound of Music Shawshanked me. And that was just the opening overture Shawshanked me. And I was like, right, well, that's two and a half hours. That's (laughs) it. You're not going anywhere. Fetch me my biscuits. (laughs) Great escape. You know, that kind of traditional Sunday British fair, Italian job. You know, all of those. Mm. And Mm. you get asked sometimes, how many times have you seen certain films? What's the film you've seen the most? And it's hard to say. How many films? I mean, Italian job I may have seen the most in parts, but I think full, probably not. Yeah. It's tricky. Do you watch films um, when you're, you're flicking through on TV? If they have ad breaks, that kind of puts me off. If I stumble upon something on ITV2 or or even Film 4, which is ad breaks, I kind of tend... I'll stick a Blu-ray on if I have it. Yeah, that's what I sometimes do. If I see it on TV and it makes me want to watch it, but it has ads, then I put on the Blu-ray if I have that. <laughs> it's pretty pathetic. I, as well as the obvious ones. I mean, we all get pulled into good films. You know, um, Singing in the Rain, if I you know, tune into any moment of that, I'm there. But also... Princess and Pride. I cannot, yeah, Princess Pride, obviously. But also, I, and I cannot quite justify this, Sister Act and Sister Act 2... I don't know why. If I turn them uh, on, I see like ten seconds. Sh- any sh- police academy movie, I do the same thing. Actually, now I think about it, any police academy movie, and then you play a game of which one I'm watching, and you've got to get it as quickly as possible. <laughs> but for the rest of the people in the room, you've got to go. Oh, 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 two, 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 yes, three, no, ah, one. I like doing that at the moment. Uh, Friends is is it's not it's not a film, but it's a TV. Well, guess the series. TV show. Yeah, guess the series. You know, usually from the a the haircuts, mm-hmm. you could tell, or uh, the. Um, the size of Chandler Fat Chandler Thin Chandler Dangerously Thin Chandler That's season three I think you Monica know. is your best bet Character wise In terms of how her character has changed Because to begin with She's the best Because she is just a normal human being <laughs> And by the end She is a wailing devil Just She is, just swings into these huge screaming fits And you just think That's not the same character I, th- I think Ross changes the most You reckon? Yeah Actually, no. Chandler changes the most. We'll have a we can have a bigger, more in depth discussion about this another time. But I, I do love to watch uh, episodes of Friends, which are constantly on Comedy Central at the moment. And you can just you can just I can I can just watch an episode endlessly and just oh that's season three, that's season four, oh, that's season seven. You can yeah, it's a, it's a fun game. Play it at home. Why don't you? Uh, but other f- films films that, that, that ensnare me uh, include Blade. <laughs> Weirdly enough, I cannot skip past that if I happen upon Blade at any point. That's it. I'm done. Uh, it's not on rotation on TV at the moment, thank God. Uh, and most recently, and yes, I know, here we go, here's the klaxon, the Avengers. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I, particularly my wife, my wife's obsessed with that film, which is uh, amazing. I'm so glad I married her. Uh, and, uh, you know, anytime she watches the Avengers, it's on Sky. We just, oh, 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 the Avengers, we're not going to watch this again, are we? And then an hour and a half later, we have. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very, very, very persuasive movie. I imagine they don't show Wild Strawberries or Die Hard with a Vengeance or Casablanca. Actually, Die Hard with a Vengeance is always on, but uh, Casablanca or Wild Strawberries, your other favourite Ingmar Bergman movies. If I stumble upon Shoah, that's a couple of, <laughs> <laughs> that's a couple of days diary leaving clearing. Um, same, same as you guys, I would say. All those films, Singing in the Rain, Die Hard, and I'm a particularly big fan of those Sunday afternoon films that, that Ali 
When Eagles Ali Dare, mentioned Where Eagles Dare, where Eagles oh. Dare is unnotwatchable. Yeah. Un- <laughs> that's amazing. That's a great word. I love that. It's unnotwatchable. I'm um, a huge fan of average war films. Like, for instance, um, we've talked about it a lot, Escape to Victory. You and I share a passion yeah, for that, Chris, don't we? Yeah. And uh, uh, well. The Eagle Has Landed. Any or oh, any film with the word landed. eagle in the title. Yeah. The yeah. Eagle. Eagle of the Nine. The, the Eagle Maybe of the not ninth. so much the Eagle. The Eagle. No, seriously, it's just the word. Not yeah. even what happens on screen. We haven't mentioned Bonds as well. Bonds, of course. No Bonds. Yeah, yeah. Bonds and Snare Me as well. Anything yeah. with Samantha Bond and there. Anything with Michael Caine? Anything with Michael Caine. Especially The Swarm. <laughs> Anything with Michael Caine. You will get sucked um, in. I don't have a telly. I mean, I have a telly, but I don't watch telly particularly. Okay. So I don't have that thing of just flicking through and coming across something unless I'm back at the family. But we did a lot at Christmas, obviously. We talked about that last week. And we enjoyed, you know, you've got to watch Last Crusade. You've got to watch Raiders, all that stuff. Okay. And Singing in the Rain. you got to. And anything with Danny Kay. You have to. And most stuff, really. Anything <laughs> that's on, I'll watch. It's not true. You're more discerning than that, aren't you? No. no. <laughs> occasionally. Occasionally. Uh, that's a good question. I like that question. And I love this next question. It's from at Robbie's BS. Interesting. Uh, if you could eat along with any movie, which would it be? And he suggests... Temple of Doom, you know, with snakes and brains <laughs> and chilled monkeys' brains and whatnot. Uh, it's a bit tricky to procure those from your local Sainsbury's. We had a cake made out of, made in the shape of a monkey brain recently, and it was hard to get people to eat the cake. Yeah. Even though it wasn't actually made of monkey brain, so you I'm know, not sure uh, how we'd the, fare the with that. The problem I think brain. with that is um, they're chilled. You prefer if, them hot? Yeah. Mm. The texture of a monkey's brain when it's cold. Yeah. I imagine. Uh-huh. Is is less palatable. A little gelatinous. A little bit. Mm-hmm. A little we, chewy. Oceans eleven. Mm-hmm. Oceans twelve. Oceans thirteen. If you just follow Rusty's quick steps to success, want to lose weight and look sexy, eat shrimp off your arm, that sort of thing. That's definitely an eat along a film series. I'd also put in there uh, Annie Hall, which makes you want to eat lobsters, and obviously Julian Julia. I think is a good answer to this question because it is just cookery. Yeah. Mm. Onwards and forever. I think uh, I think Goodfellas is amazing. You could always talk about films like Babette's Feast and Big Night, the Stanley Tucci uh, movie from a few years ago. Ratatouille, films that revolve around food, but Goodfellas doesn't. But at the same time, it probably has more scenes of cooking and cooking amazing meals than, than most films. And they go into really great detail about how to slice the onion, slice garlic, so it just you know caramelizes in the pan. Beautiful stuff. Mwah. Michelle Rue, five Michelin stars for that movie. Um, and uh, speaking of Brad Pitt and Ocean's, uh, the Ocean's trilogy and uh, Rusty Ryan's habit of eating in every scene, there's uh, someone on Reddit uh, has put together a picture list of everything. This has literally happened in the last 24 hours as well, so it's very timely, uh, of every food stuff that he eats across the trilogy. And I was doing a bit of research, and it seems that it's a bit of a Brad Pitt habit. Yeah, he does, he does it in Moneyball oh, yeah. massively as He does, well. yeah. And there's a list. Someone on Fulcher went and put a list of every foodstuff that Brad Pitt eats across all of his movies. So there's a bagel in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, baked beans in Johnny Suede, there's French fries in Moneyball, ham in Legends of the Fall. It's somewhat apt, you could say. Hey! Uh, <laughs> there's uh, pancakes in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, peanut butter and Meet Joe Black of course he gets addicted to that doesn't he yeah, he Joe licks Black. it off yeah. the spoon uh, Chinese takeaway in both Benjamin Button and California and yeah. there's tons there's tons there's a search for that the best film to eat along with though I think would be Waitress um, I very foolishly went into a 6 o'clock screening of that not having eaten uh, I think with Ollie Richards and the, the pair of us sat there just like 
salivating the whole time because all she does in that film not everything she does but basically every scene has pie in it uh, uh, you know savory pies sweet pies pies with cream pies with ice cream but always pie it's incredibly difficult to watch on an empty stomach there's good pies in the hbo mildred pierce many good pies also true great cakes there as well yes and not such good pies in labor day but we're going to talk about that when the film comes out good pie but weirdly made um <laughs> i wonder how you get on if you if you ate along with widnell and i because they would, have you, some would you do much eating you do a bit you probably you do a bit of eating do they not they have they have the chicken i do a bit of vomiting after you have the wood <laughs> uh polished down your throat you're you're basically dead i'm yeah. saying putting the putting the um the booze to one side for a moment and just focusing the on the food <laughs> the fried egg scene at the beginning the chicken they, they make that they make food in that film look so unpalatable it's amazing <laughs> uh the eel Oh. And the saveloy that the guy's got in his bath with him. Amazing. You can eat that saveloy. <laughs> there have got to be no. other films though that are a bit like Temple of Doom, where you they're unnot watchable, where they're unnot eat Um Yeah. So That would be one. Chocolat. Yeah, yeah uh, the cook the thief, his wife and her lover. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit now where you, you wouldn't want to partake necessarily. Uh, I'm guessing Peter Jackson's brain dead when the ear falls into the custard. That's, that's a particularly red dragon, wretch inducing one. Red dragon. Oh, <laughs> good call. <laughs> After this, would you have to go on the Butterfield diet? <laughs> the Butterfield diet plan, absolutely. Hoisting crispy owl. Thank you so much for your questions this week. Uh, if you want to have your question read out on the podcast, you can get in touch via any one of a number of different methods uh, you can check us out on Twitter we're at Empire Magazine and the hashtag is Empire Podcast if you want us to see your question we're on Facebook we're as Empire Magazine obviously and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com time now for our first interview Juliette Lewis has been one of Hollywood's most interesting actors for the past couple of decades or so kicking off with a fantastic double whammy National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and Cape Fear how about that Ooh, in- impressive I say kicking off, they weren't actually her first films, but you know what I mean. Uh, then she took to the likes of Old School, Strange Days, and a rock music career along the way as well. She could be seen in next week's Oscar Friendly, as we're about to see, August, Osage County. And when she came to London recently, Helen went along to speak to her. And uh, please be aware, uh, she's, she talks very loudly. It's probably all those years hanging around rock music. Uh, what? Yeah, so, you know, apologies. You might, if this is too loud, maybe have your finger hovering over the, the volume control so you can turn it on. Enjoy! Welcome to the Empire Podcast. We are joined today by Juliet Lewis to talk about August Osage County. Is that, am I saying it right? It's August Osage County. Osage. Osage County is a little tiny town in Oklahoma. Wow. So, how did you um, first get involved in this? Had you seen the play, you know, or was it literally that it came to you as a script first? It came to me as a script first, but I was very aware of Tracy Letts as a writer and a brilliant writer. He, um, I did see a play he did called Killer Joe. That was off Broadway. I heard many people talk about this this play, August Osage County. Um, people usually are obsessed with it who saw the play. And when I read the script, I immediately fell in love with Karen because my character she lives in in a world of denial that's so magical that sometimes I dream of that delusion. And what I mean by that is when things are so tough, she could still paint it with roses, you know, and, um, and it's to a fault, but it's something quite special with her. Also, the material is so well written where every single character goes through a journey 
and um, the dynamic, the family dynamic and dysfunctions are so uh, visceral. Mm-hmm. And it's the power of Tracy's writing. Like none of us improvised. It's it's all his writing, and we we just sort of gave our very best. Yeah. And, and Karen's very much, she is the people pleaser, isn't she? She's trying to hold everything together. Yeah, there's a desperation and anxiety under under the surface, you know. And it's funny because I'm playing Julia Roberts' sister, and I'm the pretty sister. I'm like the one who's focused on her appearances and, and, and you know, dressed to the nines. And where Julia, her character's going through a divorce, and she's has gray in her hair, and she's really being dumpy in this film because that's the part. So I'm always looking to play parts I've never played before. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to think of one of yours like this, and I really couldn't. I mean, the the closest I was coming up with was the sort of the mother figure in uh, uh, Catch and Release. But but just oh, yeah, because she's true. got the same kind of sweetness, and, and apart from that, really... Yeah, matter. there's a sunny disposition, mm-hmm. and um, rather than wearing your your primal black colors on your sleeves. I don't know what my metaphors are there, but um, yeah, this character, but how she begins, you know, it's a three-page monologue. I've never done that on screen. You know, she's an incessant talker, and um, which I just think is so funny because we've all met those people and they, to me, they're always, it feels like they're either really nervous or hiding something. And so how she, when we first meet her and then where she ends up, that arc was really spectacular for me because the last scene, how she's just disheveled and falling apart at the seams, it, it, it was, I tried to give her some dignity, but it's quite heartbreaking as yeah, well. It is. I have to say, the, the three of you, I thought, made a very, made very convincing sisters, mm-hmm. you know, looks-wise, but also just in behaviour. And you especially see that there's a there's a scene where the three sisters yeah. are sort of in a kind of like a glass house outside, yeah. just having a glass of wine. And you get a sense of that kind of family history between the three of them. It's really good. Yeah, we we really worked on that, you know, and, and all the actors came together. I mean, we were all in this tiny town, really, together. There were no entourages we weren't sequestered in private houses you know what i mean it was just like these weird condo structures that we all lived in and we worked on the relationships and the backstories and i thought that was really remarkable of meryl and julia you know they're they're really big stature stature of um celebrity and and really good actors but they the fact that they were so giving in rehearsal you know sharing we all shared our own family stories and different different things that they didn't need to share and so that whole experience was really special Mm -hmm. to to create the foundation because even though they're so diverse you still there's still an affinity amongst them yeah um, I've got to ask, right? It's it's coming up to Christmas as as we speak. This will be going out in January. But we were talking this morning about favorite Christmas films in the office, and Christmas Vacation came up. Hmm. Now I've got to ask: Do you hmm. watch that? Is that on in your house every year, or do you, if it comes on TV, do you sort of scream and turn? Okay. Around? Well, first of all, I'm one of these weird people that doesn't have a TV, okay. so I'm one of those people. However. No, I have a very close attachment to Christmas Vacation because they play it every year. I was 15, and for me, it was a really big job at the time. You know, it was a big studio film. 
Um, it was the biggest movie I'd done. And I like it. You know, I'm on Twitter a lot, so I get all these comments. You know, Christmas vacation's on. I don't know. I like that I'm a part of people's holiday. And people don't, half the time, don't know it's me. And then they realize, oh, my God, you were a Griswold, which I think the same thing. <laughs> I think it's so cute. Have you have you heard about the reboot that they're they're doing? Have you got any opinion on that? No. What are they doing? You mean another a vacation new, yeah, movie? Yeah. Oh, they a should. Newport Griswold. I think Ed Helms is in line. Yeah. What's so cute is they. Um, oh, Ed Helms would be a good one. Right. Okay. Oh, I love it. That's actually perfect. Um, I've I've also got to ask. I'm a big fan of Whip It. It turned my little sister into a roller derby. Awesome. Girl. So um so you know. Have you kept up the skating since? Do you, do you moonlight as Iron Maiden? No, I, my Iron Maven spirit is in my rock and roll music. I take that to the stage. I feel roller derby gals are far tougher than I. I'm tough emotionally, but I physically, yeah, physically I can't, I wouldn't be able to sustain the types of wounds you acquire when you do roller derby. But we did for a minute, you know, we, when we did Whip It, we skated for a good month straight, and then while we were shooting, we were on skates for 12 to 14 hours a day. Like, the endorphin high alone was pretty spectacular. Um, roller derby girls are amazing because there's no age limit. There's no, they come from all walks of life, and it's just people who have a certain spirit. And want to get outside themselves or see what they have to offer. And I think I, I really recommend it for people to get involved in. It's it's really special. Yeah. And it's a real it's a real kind of girl power movie as well. You don't see a lot of, you know, films that are female led to that extent. Yeah. Mostly female. In the yeah. It was a really is a really special movie. I think it's it's so nice. It's so nice for, as a coming of age movie where. It's not just like a girl getting a crush on a dude. I mean, there there's that element in it, and that's a huge part of everybody's upbringing. But this is something else uh, more. It's finding your inner warrior in a, in a way. I wanted to ask you about your music. I mean, you, you mentioned it already. Not we've we've got a big fan in the, in the office of uh, Juliet and the Licks. He wanted to know were th were there any rejected band names? What what led you to that? One? Oh yeah, there were. It was, I had to see what was available. There was Juliet and the Skins, Juliet, and I forgot all the names. There were quite a few, and then Juliet and the Licks. But Juliet and the Licks is no more. My next record is is just it's me. I'm I'm writing it with members of Cage the Elephant. Okay. Um, which is an amazing band that's going on tour this February with Foles. But this guy, Brad Schultz, who's a guitar player in Cage, he's producing an EP. I've also been doing some writing with a girl named Isabella Summers from Florence and the Machine. She's a keyboardist and co-writer with Florence. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really excited about my EP next year. I might put it under a different name. We'll see. I'm flirting with some ideas, but I hope to be playing um, festivals next year. And uh, but I, definitely there will be some sweaty, dirty rock shows ahead. <laughs> I was going to ask him: Is it a very different sound then, or is it kind of, you know, similar to what you've done before, or is it just kind of? It's rock and roll, and it's ferocious, uh, but it's different in that it's better. I think because it's I've grown as a songwriter, and the sounds are different. It's not as guitar driven. Right. Um, the licks is very muscular guitar rock. 
the my new sound is it's groove it has more groove um there's keyboards the guitar is weirder you know but it's the spirit is still me and i still want to get people to lose their minds <laughs> cool um speaking of music and strange days you performed a couple of pj harvey songs mm-hmm. have you ever like seen her and talked to her about those since did you ever get any feedback on isn't them? that a trip i've never met her oh, no. i've never met her and we kind of you know rose up in the same decade and i got to you know the 90s mm-hmm. and i got to sing two of her songs i i'm a huge fan of hers but i never met her Oh, wow. Um, and then, I mean, just speaking of the 90s, I mean, Natural Born Killers uh, was a huge controversy in its day. And I mean, I was watching it again recently and it kind of feels like, you know, that's <laughs> just the way films have gone since to some degree. I mean, do you think if it was released today, do you think there would still be the the, the, the kind of sheer panic? I don't know. I think what's awesome about it is if it was released today, it would still be as meaningful as it was then because here the panic was i'll tell you what the panic was it was oliver stone antagonizing the media that's what i think and and so it got lambasted by the media Uh, to me it's more complicated it's it's not celebrating killers as heroes you're missing the point if that's what it is he's shining a light on our own doing creating of those mythical figures as well as the media's participation and i don't know it was a pure it was amazing to be able to do because also as a female you don't get to explore those primal energies and not many females do that so i i took it as such a compliment that people thought i was crazy after the movie (laughs) because i was like do they think woody's crazy no but they think i am so i I must be awesome (laughs) Um, and what's up next for you? Have you got Hellions or Helion? Hellion is a, a beautiful little independent, speaking of. It's a very small film um, that just got accepted into Sundance. It stars Aaron Paul, and it's a beautiful role for him, and I'm in it too. And we'll see where it goes. Okay. Uh, other than that, I'm going to finish my record in January with the guys, and um, be on tour next year, and and I can't wait for all that to happen. Thanks for having me. Now it's lovely movie news time. I love movie news. What have you got for me? Thomas Kretschmann. Yes. German actor. He's joined yes. the cast of Avengers, colon, Age of Ultron, and he's going to be playing a bad guy. He's going to be playing Baron Wolfgang von Strucker. Apologies to any Bavarians in the house. And he has the best name for me in the entire Marvel-verse. He plays. He's a um, he's a high-ranking Nazi um, who kind of crosses Hitler and ends up in Hydra. And we're assuming that either he'll be appearing in flashback with uh, taking on obviously Captain America in the sort of wartime era, or more likely, he'll be contemporaneous to the Avengers and working in cahoots, roughly, with uh, James Spader. James Spader playing Ultron, of course. And there's some speculations from Scott about on the web that he will be basically an early appearance and facing off against the Avengers before they move on to bigger fish, stroke, bigger artificial intelligence in a the sort shape of, of Ultron. A sort of James Bond pre credit sequence kind, kind of, of thing, thing, yeah. That's interesting. Don't know how they'd get the Avengers together, all of them, or maybe it's just a couple of them. Mm. That'd be fun. Yeah, I'd quite like to see that happening. That'd be, that'd be, that'd that'd be, be fun. Nice I'd like to see yeah. Hulk dancing down, the, down a barrel. 
the gun barrel. <laughs> classic. Well, lots, of, lots of what the, the criticism was just Tony Stark for trying to put lots of naked hulks with their nipples ever so co- tastefully covered. Oh, God, maybe, please, no. Maybe uncovered. You've Stop taken it. that ball and run with it. Mark Ruffalo's very unpredictable nipples, oh. direction. Let me, let me just say that again. Mark Ruffalo's nipples. How do you feel about that now? I'm just... I, I, it's hurting my head. I'm going to introduce Chris Hemsworth's stop. nipples. Now they're okay, dancing towards each other. <laughs> now they're touching. Oh, my God. Oh, they're cr- anyway, moving on. Uh, How well, did that happen? Yeah, that was can good. I just, can I just say one final thing? If no. you're not aware of who Thomas Kretschmann is, and it started so briefly and I've just started rambling. <laughs> Thomas Kretschmann, of course, played the uh, the Wehrmacht officer at the end of Roman Polanski's The Pianist who, who encounters and helps Adrian Brody. Um, sorry for spoiling the pianist, and, and also the ship captain in Peter Jackson's King Kong, and he's a, he's an actor that we like and we haven't seen that much of in big Hollywood movies. So I think this is exciting. Yeah, he is essentially the German Liam Neeson. I would say he looks a little bit like him. He's currently playing Van Helsing in Dracula, the TV show version of Dracula with Jonathan Rhys Meyers, which I haven't watched. I have a sneaking suspicion it is god awful. But uh, what was that have you Jonathan Rhys Meyers that gave it away? It is Jonathan Rhys Meyers' presence that, that gave it away slightly. But anyone know? Anyone know everything about Dracula? Is it meant to be good? I haven't. Uh, said, I have to say, I haven't been watching it. But I'd be interested in seeing him as Van Helsing. I think that's kind of cool casting. Apparently, and I got this from James White. Okay. Uh, who, who he watches everything. Apparently, they have to team up to take down some badder baddies. Oh. Yeah. I may be wrong. Don't quote me. Anyway, Phil. Can I do my one final point on this? And I yeah, really on, have gone too far yeah, at this point. Why not? The fact that he's called Wolfgang gives me the opportunity to do my, one of my favourite bits of football trivia. That uh, the, uh, the manager of Wolfsburg FC um, a few years ago was called Wolfgang Wolf. <laughs> uh, which I love. But unfortunately, he got sacked. Oh, why would they sack that no guy? No sense of humour at, Wolf, at Wolfsburg. Anyway. Yeah, speaking of uh, football and, uh, and movies... Uh, the former manager of Huddersfield Town FC was called Peter Jackson and he was sacked because he kept trying to split every game into three halves <laughs> wow okay. you just made that up I made the second bit up but uh. the first bit was true <laughs> yes <laughs> Ali what have you got I've mentioned this project before but uh, you may not have you might have seen online there have been some paparazzi shots of Johnny Depp's uh, latest uh, uh, project uh, which is the Mordecai movie now if you don't know who Mordecai is Mordecai is a character from and this is the best name you'll ever hear Cyril Bonfiglioli's uh, uh, there are about four there are three novels that were published in his lifetime and then after he died there was obviously a posthumous novel uh, which was kind of edited together but it's about a art collector Bon Viver essentially London set wine drinker who prats around uh, being very uh, funny and um <laughs> you know, arrogant, uh, getting involved in capers and such. It's very Johnny Depp. And he's managed to get a few more people onto this. Uh, I think they're taking it to America. They're, they're kind of taking it across the Atlantic. Uh, but they've managed to get a few of my favourite people involved now, which has made me even more excited about this project. Uh, Aubrey Plaza, who you might know from Parks and Rec, who we uh, a TV show we were talking about a lot last week. She's on board. But more importantly, Jeff Goldblum, the master of chaos, is oh. on board this movie. And it, it should mm. be quite, you know funny and witty and action adventure and and capery and i really hope it's a little bit more like uh what the tourist should have been uh i.e good uh funny <laughs> and exciting Ooh. Mm. i'm really worried by his hair though at the golden globes it looked bad if that's what it's going to be on screen Ooh. describe it to us highlights it's no not- just the full thing it's nothing like what it, they're taking a lot of liberties with the book itself, the books itself. But if you do 
I don't know, if you happen to be near a computer as you're listening to this, do check out Cyril, that was with a K, K-Y-R-I-L, Bonfiglioli's books, uh, Mordecai, spelt M-O-R-T-D-E-C-A-I. It's amazing. Love the books. How exciting. Isn't Johnny Depp, uh, has he been linked this week with uh, Marvel's Doctor Strange, then unlinked? And then linked again, then unlinked. But how easy is it to write that story on iHaveAblog.com? Oh, wouldn't it be whatever, question mark, question mark, exclamation mark. Yeah, it, you, can, you can link and unlink as much as you like. But what's absolutely certain is that Ant-Man has cast someone rather important. Yes, that's right. Uh, Michael Douglas has been announced to play Hank Pym in Edgar Wright's Ant-Man. Uh, that's after the announcement of Paul Rudd as the film's kind of lead. So that means Paul Rudd, for any of you confused by this, Paul Rudd plays Scott Lang, who in the comics was the was the second Ant-Man who originally, in the comics, he stole the suit. He was a petty thief, he stole the suit um, and uh, and then, you know, became a hero kind of uh, re- gradually and, and somewhat reluctantly at the beginning. Um, whereas Hank Pym is the guy who invented the whole thing in the first place. So it's kind of interesting that they're not going with the obvious Hank Pym. They've kind of done scientist superheroes before, especially in the Marvel Universe. What they haven't done is the kind of bad guy turned good story arc so I think that's a really good way to set it up and to to differentiate it from some of the other Avengers that we already have so Michael Douglas confirmed for Pim there is a story there was also a story later in the week that Michael Pena was in talks to join the film Marvel denied that uh, so he probably isn't but at the same time often studios deny things when people are still in talks and haven't confirmed anything so take it as a, a denial but not an absolute denial I really like this casting yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's fun. Yeah, uh, it really is. And uh, as you said, it's it makes Pym sufficiently different from Marvel's other super you know super genius inventor, Tony Stark, which is interesting, especially given the Avengers. We talked about this a little bit, but uh, Ultron is Hank Pym's creation mm-hmm. in the comic books. That's not going to be the case. It seems in the movies, he won't be in Avengers two. It's interesting. Unless, of course, he does turn up in Avengers 2 and Marvel are pulling one of their bait and switches on us. It could be that he's in some kind of supporting role and some kind of cameo um, to tie the two films together. I mean, I'm not saying it's likely. It's possible? Possibly. I'm, in my experience with Kevin Feige, he doesn't outright lie. Okay. He may be obfuscates a little bit. He may be... But if, if he says Hank Pym is not in Avengers 2, yeah. I believe him. I and certainly the, the video we saw at Comic-Con very much suggested, uh, you know, with the sort of... Iron Man helmet turning into the Ultron mask, it, it certainly you know, made it look like mm. it would be a Tony Stark special, which would fit with his previous experiments in robotics. It is interesting. I mean, uh, the, the cast in this movie, you know, I, I can't believe it's happening for a start. It's been, it's been, it's been on the agenda for almost a decade now, uh, Edgar Wright's Ant-Man. I'm really intrigued to see how they're going to fit it into this wider picture now that Marvel have, because whenever uh, Edgar Wright pitched it to Marvel, I think it was even before Shaun of the Dead he was talking to him about it. And uh, it surely wasn't part of Phase 1, Phase 2, Phase 3. Now it has to kind of fit into that, that universe. So it's going to be interesting to see how it does that. But uh, in all the conversations about who's going to be cast and what's the plot in the movie, and when Paul Rudd was announced, even we in the podcast said, oh, he's going to be Hank Pym. He's going to be Hank Pym. Um, but I forgot that in 2006... I actually sat down with Edgar Wright for about 25 minutes. We talked about Ant-Man. He doesn't talk about Ant-Man anymore. Mm. Um, he's learned his lesson, I think. But he, he kept some fairly illuminating quotes here, which I found in an issue November 2006. Let me see. Okay, so these are quotes from Edgar Wright. The spin on doing it, the spin on it is doing an origin story, which is slightly different. A Sean was a comedy that just happened to be in a zombie film. Ant-Man is almost like a crime spy thriller in the guise of a superhero film. 
uh, I wanted to start it in a world almost like an Elmore Leonard world in the vein of Out of Sight or Ocean's Eleven where you can throw in this complete curveball element of this superpower. And he talks a bit about, uh, he says, uh, Shrinking films are usually films about the peril of being small. This is essentially an action-adventure film with a hero who can shrink and increase in size. There's so much you can do with that, let alone everything else, like controlling ants. It's so high concept and something that really hasn't been seen before. But then about casting, about the story, mm-hmm. he actually confirmed that there was going to be Pym and Lang. He says, essentially, this is about Scott Lang, who is a burglar, stealing the suit and how his paths cross with Henry Pym again and how they kind of team up. And maybe, at some point, Scott gets to be a hero there's some interesting things there um, obviously that was seven years ago it could and probably has changed uh, a lot but at the same time I imagine his vision has stayed fairly consistent all the way through uh, one of the things that's interesting is uh, this concept whenever Variety we were the first people to break the Michael Douglas story and their story for about 30 seconds the headline was Michael Douglas to play the villain in Ant-Man and then they changed it to Michael Douglas to play Hank Pym and Ant-Man was that a mistake or could they given that Ant-Man doesn't really have a great rogues gallery mm. given that his principal nemesis will be already uh, will have already been dispatched I guess in Avengers 2 might Pym turn out to be the nemesis in a sort of Jim Phelps Mission Impossible style interesting that would be fun wouldn't it that would be very very intriguing indeed also I had this other thought uh, this is completely me going off on one here but uh, Michael Douglas was confirmed as Hank Pym by name in the uh, press release by Marvel with quotes from Kevin Feige saying he's going to be a great Hank Pym. Paul Rudd has still not been confirmed as playing a, as a named character. Still hasn't been confirmed as Scott Lang. And I began to think, hang on, if they have flashbacks to the 60s, could Paul Rudd be playing young Hank Pym as well? Or will there be a third Ant-Man? Edgar has also talked in the past about there will be flashbacks to young Pym creating the suit and blah, blah, blah. So I'm kind of wondering, is there, will there be a third bit of casting to be announced for this movie? And who could it be? But they did, didn't they announce Paul Rudd as the lead? Yes, they did. Don't, well, hmm. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, intriguing, yes. And one last thing, and I'm before you all get bored. Um, in the article I wrote in 2006, I speculated on who could play Ant Man. How see. did you do? Uh, not, not well. Uh, Will Arnett for Scott Lang, I said. Kind of along the same lines, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Will Ferrell for Hank Pym. This was me going, it's a comedy, so he will cast comedy people. And uh, Jeremy Piven, I threw in the mix as well, because I think we needed a third name. So <laughs> Quaaludes kicking in there, Chris. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, too much sushi. My omega-3 levels were dangerously high. I'm interested in this, all those things, but I'm also interested in Edgar Wright and how he fits in stylistically into the Marvel world, because he's, he's probably the director of any of these films, I don't know if you guys agree, that has his most distinctive kind of... In premature, I guess his own creative stamp. The, the way he one. uses the camera, probably yeah. the only one who you could describe as a, you know, not an auteur, but someone that has a very, very clear visual visual identity, um, and musical identity as well. You know, he loves to use music and and musical cues in a way that we haven't really seen in a Marvel film. So I'll be interested to see how that pa- plays out. Absolutely. Uh, and just very quickly before we finish, uh, Paul Greengrass obviously blew us away earlier this year with Captain, well, late last year with Captain Phillips. Um, he is now in discussions. Uh, for uh, a film called The Director, appropriate, uh, with, which would be with the same producers, uh, Scott Rudden and Michael DeLuca at Sony. Um, and uh, it's it's based on a novel uh, by David Ignatius. Um, it's a new novel that hasn't even been published yet, which is about a CIA director um, 
who's just been appointed, uh, when one day a Swiss teenager walks into the uh, the American consulate in Germany and announces that he's hacked, the, or someone has hacked the agency and he has a list of agents' names to prove it, throwing, obviously, the CIA into considerable turmoil. Um, so cyber kind of thriller uh, is the plan. It would seem to be potentially in Greengrass's wheelhouse, you know, something uh, a little bit borny about that. Um, but obviously we don't know much more because the novel hasn't been published yet. And he is only in talks at this stage. However, there is another potential project to add to his to-do list. Absolutely. Which studio is that? That's with Sony. Okay, because I was wondering maybe they could reconfigure it as a Bourne movie. <laughs> no, I don't think there are any plans for that. But I mean, he also is obviously, he's been working for a long time on Memphis, the film by Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also in talks at one point for the Stand adaptation, which would be a fantastic fit. So who knows what will come up next. Absolutely. He told me last year that Memphis is unlikely to happen. Yes, he did. He said so, that on this podcast, in he fact. He did indeed. He did. I forgot about that. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, got, he's got the grey hair, long grey hair. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that guy. You Paul, were wearing your blue, wearing blue jumper. There we go, there we go, Paul Greengrass. And of course, the big news is that the Oscar nominations were announced yesterday. Mr. Chris Hemsworth, Thor himself, got up very, very early, took the Rainbow Bridge to LA, <laughs> and uh, talked about uh, the president of the Academy. Was that the other person? Yes, the Academy president. The, the Academy president, Mrs. President. Do you get her name? Uh, no. Chloe, um, Chloe. Chloe Moretz. Um, and they, Idris Elba would have got a nomination if they'd had that bridge in place. Maybe. But then again, he was uh, probably overseen. Oh, you think he was guarding that, I see. Yeah. We're off the beaten track already. Yes. Uh, That's good news. Uh, Anyway, the Oscar nominations were announced. Uh, Leading the way was American Hustle with 10. Yes. Gravity with 10. Captain Phillips got how many? Six? Yep. 12 Years a Slave. 12 Years a Slave got nine. And Movie 43 got a record-breaking 15. I believe. Uh, is this true? N- none. 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 It's easy none. to confuse those two. It is yeah, easy to confuse those two. Shall we go through them category by category? And is that the best way? And we can sure. talk about snubs and whether we feel the people Absolutely. in the categories are, are, deserved, are deserving. Uh, right, where should we start? Should we start oh. with... You know what? I'm going to start with animated film because I'm a right, cookie, cookie kind of guy. Uh, animated film. Nominees are The Croods, Despicable Me 2, Ernest and Celestine. They'll be delighted about that. Frozen and uh, uh, Miyazaki's final film, The Wind Rises. So... Mm. Frozen's going to walk this um, because it's still in cinema, still making huge amounts of money there. It is a phenomenon. It had it last weekend the fourth biggest, let me get this seventh right. weekend, seventh weekend of all time, behind just um, Avatar, Titanic, and The Passion of the Jesus. Uh, so that was very interesting. I thought. Uh, and we give that three stars so remember the Academy that's, <laughs> that's a recommendation, a recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear that was me but that's no disrespect to the other nominees I mean Despicable Me 2 was bags of fun Ernest and Celestine which I'm yet to see uh, to my shame but mm-hmm. I am hearing great great things about it it's a French animated film and I have to say what I have seen is absolutely adorable and The Wind Rises, I mean, I can never begrudge Miyazaki any kind of uh, nomination. There's been a little bit of controversy about that just because it's about the designer of the Japanese Zeros in World War II. So it's kind of a uh, people going, oh, it's a, b- a pro-war film. But I think it, it isn't. I think it's about just obsession and, and weirdness. Anyway, um, but I'll be honest, I do think Frozen is going to take it just because it's still there in people's minds. Pixar or, or absence of Pixar. Because, I mean, we've come from uh, a few years back when they were getting Best Picture nominations. Yeah. Um, for Up, I believe, and Toy Story 3 most recently. Uh, and they're not even making it in the animation category with Monsters University, which... Also Cars 2 missed out, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess Monsters University is slightly more... You'd expect it to be there, perhaps. It's interesting, because uh, Monsters University didn't do as well at the box office as I think they might have perhaps expected. 
And certainly there seems to be a little bit of a recalibration, shall we say, at the company, mm. uh, with certain films being pushed back and certain directors being pushed off certain films and replaced by other directors. Uh, so maybe they are trying to get their house in order. Maybe they are aware that the quality has not been... I enjoyed Monsters University. It's not a patch on Monsters, Inc. Uh, I think it's telling that the, the thing that's most memorable about that film for me is the song at the very end and not... <laughs> anything that actually happened. Yeah, I don't think it's, it doesn't quite have the emotional punch of Monsters, Inc. I, I completely doesn't. agree. I mean, to be honest, changing directors is business as usual at Pixar, but I do, I do agree that I think they've, they've got a little bit of um, recalibration to there's, do. There's no Pixar film this year, is that correct? That is, yes. Yeah. So it's a, a year without a Pixar. It's like a year without sun. But maybe it's they're just pushing the reset button. That'll be awesome. It'll be fantastic. Next year, again, with uh, Pete Doctor's Inside Out and... Finding Dory as well as Finding Dory out. and uh, let's move on now to supporting actress uh, Jennifer Lawrence for American Hustle Jen- Julia Roberts for August Osage County the Pete Nyong'o the newcomer for 12 Years a Slave Sally Hawkins Blue Jasmine and June Squibb uh, for Nebraska This to me is maybe the hardest category to call Genuinely, I mean Jennifer Lawrence is the obvious uh, I guess front runner in, the ca- in, in that everyone adores her right now um, she obviously won Best Actress last year. She's had three nominations, three Oscar nominations at the age of 23, which I believe is a record. It's an incredible performance. So we can't rule her out, and I won't. Uh, Julia Roberts is very good, actually, in August. Uh, she's It's a very showy role in many ways. It's the kind of role that o- Oscar traditionally goes for. But the film itself is not getting a whole lot of love, and deservedly. Lupita Nyong'o, uh, 12 Years a Slave, incredible performance, but it is her very first film, and sometimes they, they tend to see people like that as, you know, rewarded enough by having a nomination sometimes, which I don't think is right, but... It does seem to kind of happen. Uh, Sally Hawkins, I would love to see get an Oscar because I think she's always great in the supporting role uh, or indeed the lead. And then Jude Squibb is so funny in Nebraska. So I, I honestly, I can't call it. Uh, it's interesting. I think Jennifer Lawrence has got this in the bag. And to be honest, I thought that Peter Nyong'o would have this in the bag about a month ago. But I feel that the momentum has shifted slightly from 12 Years a Slave. It might come back. Yeah. Who knows? We'll but, talk about that in a minute with, yeah. with Best Picture, I think. But but I'm I'm not... I wouldn't Cer- disagree. Certainly in this category, I think the uh, the momentum has shifted. That would mean Jennifer Lawrence would have two Oscars at the age of 23, yeah. never mind nominations. Uh, she's on course to outstrip Streep. What? Gosh. And yet I wouldn't say that her performance is there. Yeah, I wouldn't say that... She's I, brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. I think she's a fantastic, fantastic actress. But yeah. I don't think she has demonstrated the range of a Streep yet, necessarily. Not yet, no. But I think that's fair. I think, you know, Meryl Streep at the same age hadn't demonstrated that range either. I mean, the, the really? interesting thing about... She's played Henry VIII five <laughs> times by that point already. <laughs> it's a rubbish play. Jennifer Lawrence, um, though, I mean, she is. she brings so much life to American Hustle and she's so kind of... Uh, she just kind of zhuzhes it all up a bit. Um, so so I think that's what might really help her, whereas Lupita Nyong'o, by the nature of both her part and the project, fits in more to the to the actual structure of the film. I, mean, I guess in some ways she's more of a supporting actress, whereas Jennifer yeah. Lawrence is more of a scene-stealer. Good point, good point. And of course Lupita Nyong'o will be nominated for her performance almost certainly as an air hostess in Mendeson's <laughs> non-stop at next year's Oscars. So if she misses out, there's always that. There's always that. Uh, moving on to supporting actor, we have uh, Barkat Abdi, uh, for Captain Phillips he's a captain now he tweeted uh, <laughs> he tweeted afterwards <laughs> three words Oscar nominated actor <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's it <laughs> I love that Bradley Cooper for uh, American Hustle Michael Fassbender for 12 Years a Slave Jonah Hill for The Wolf of Wall Street making it his second Oscar nomination and uh, last but not least Jared Leto uh, for Dallas Buyers Club BAFTA said no 
Oscar says yes. Yeah, I think Leto might be the one to beat, given that he's gotten a heck of a lot of love uh, stateside so far for that role. Um, I mean, traditionally, sort of Oscar handicapping would tend to favour maybe Michael Fassbender in that he's been getting a heck of a lot of... um, you know, of plaudits for his career to date. And, and, you know, Oscar tends to reward people who have been doing well and haven't had the sort of the recognition before. Barkad Abdi came out of nowhere and blew us all away. But again, as I said with Lupita Nyong'o, first timers in their first film, they tend to say, well, you've got a nomination. Go home now. That's enough for you. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. And Bradley Cooper had to put up with that hair for months, which does deserve some sort of award. But I'm not sure he wouldn't be my choice, certainly for the category. I think um, I'm disappointed that Daniel Brühl didn't get a nomination in this category yeah. for Rush. I thought he was fantastic in what could have been a very difficult role. I just I wasn't smitten by American Hustle. I thought it was great, fine, and everything. But uh, Bradley Cooper, I don't know. It seemed it was a decent performance, but I would have preferred to have seen Daniel Brühl. I was furious that Trevor Slattery was overlooked for Iron Man Three. <laughs> he was amazing in that movie. Um, Ian Nathan of this parish uh, said that he would like to have seen Harrison Ford nominated for Forty Two. Uh, he said it was a performance unlike anything Harrison Ford had ever given before. Honestly, mm. I haven't seen the film, but anyone here I have. concur? No. No, good? Okay. <laughs> Moving on uh, swiftly. And Steve Coogan, um, uh, Damo Wise, uh, wrote in Empire about four months ago, uh, Nostradamo, as I'm going to call him now, that Steve Coogan would get an Oscar nomination for Philomena. Uh, he got two, as it turns out. He didn't get nominated, though, for actor. Yeah. Uh, best supporting actor, I guess. You think he might have swung that? Maybe he might have. Yeah, I think it's a really it's it's a pretty um, competitive year all round this year. So Mm. I mean, people also Tom Hanks for Saving Mr. Banks might have been in there in another year. And that that you know is one of the the kind of surprises. I, think. I would have said he would have been actor, but we'll get on to that. I know I guess. he would. They would have been. They supporting. would have put him up for best supporting for Mr. Banks and well, best actor for Captain. Don't, don't spoil it. Yeah. Don't spoil it, Helen. In case people actually don't know who's been nominated. <laughs> um, and it, well, comedy is usually we've talked about this in the podcast in the in the past. Comedy tends to squeak into these categories. I don't think there's ever a chance of this happening. But do you think there were any com- uh, comedic performances from last year that that were worthy, perhaps? I mean, yeah, well, we've we've said the kind maybe. of thing before. Yeah, I was yeah. about to say Nick Frost in World's End. I think was was terrific, but comedy just never gets the love. I, sorry, I should say, you know, out night comedy. I, I would actually argue that both American Hustle and The Wolf of Wall Street are yeah. probably comedies this year. But they're they're the kind of comedy that you know Oscar pretends are dramas. Let's move on now to actress Amy Adams for American Hustle. I feel like a cut price Chris Hemsworth. Always, I feel like a cut <laughs> price Chris Hemsworth, but this time I really do. Uh, Kate Blanchett for uh, Blue Jasmine, Meryl Streep for August Osage County, Judy Dench for Philomena, and uh, Sandra Bullock for Gravity. I will go ahead and rule out Meryl Streep right now. What? Yep, that's right. I did it. Uh, I'm also going to rule out Judy Dench, uh, who I think is brilliant in the film, but I don't think is is one of the top three this year. I think it's actually, let's be honest, it's going to be Kate Blanchett, you know, according to all the signs and prophecies. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> the ancient signs and prophecies. However, there is only one person in this category without an Oscar already on her mantelpiece. That's Amy Adams. She's had four nominations for Best Supporting Actress. Four. Um, and I would love to see her finally take something home. So maybe she gets the sympathy vote. And Sandra Bullock, I think, is phenomenal in Gravity. I just saw it again on the IMAX this week. And, you know, it would be lovely if that if that uh, got some love. But I think it maybe is a bit too sciency for Oscar. She doesn't have a performance nominated for the Razzies. God damn it, I mentioned the Razzies. But uh, it would be nice Chris. if she could have done that one-two punch again, uh, winning Worst Actress and then Best Actress the next day. <gasps> um, can you say Philomena again? Philomena. Can you say flippity-jibbit? 
flippity gibbet. You need to say that another 64 times. <laughs> I agree with everything you just said. Okay. Great. Amy Adams, I thought it was terrific in, in American Hustle. Uh, not that I feel bad about saying Bradley Cooper was not so good. He was good. Um, yeah, but uh, Amy Adams, but I think you're right. I think it's bound to be... Um, it's bound to be Kate Blanchett for that performance. She's so absolutely fantastic. And, you know, she kind of went out... It's a film that Blue Jasmine, that the Academy has not forgotten about neglected, but if it had come out maybe a little bit later, yeah. it would have got more love perhaps in other categories. But, you know, the calibre of the acting, Sally Hawkins and Kate Blanchett is, uh, has been well represented here, which is great. Anyone overlook? Emma Thompson. Okay. For Saving Mr Banks. That is the big omission. I mean, you can argue about other people, but... You know, I think she's a a wonderful person, human being, an incredible uh, speech giver. Um, so it would have been lovely to see her win just for the speech. However, uh, yeah, she she's also brilliant in that film. I think she papers over a lot of the cracks in the quality of the film itself because she is just so phenomenal um, as P.L. Travers. Is it? It's very unusual, I assume, for a Golden Globes winner to not even get a nomination. It's actually it's not that unusual. Um, it does happen a fair bit because you know the Golden Globes aren't as much of a, a, an Oscar predictor as they would like us to think. They kind of essentially try and guess who Oscar's going to nominate. Okay, let's move on to actor then. I think this is going to inspire some debate. <laughs> uh, the five nominees that the Academy saw fit to Garland with the nomination are Bruce Dern for Nebraska. Chiwetel Ejiofor for 12 Years a Slave, formerly of this podcast, of course. Indeed. Uh, Christian Bell for American Hustle. Leonardo DiCaprio for The Wolf of Wall Street. And Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club. Right, so here we have four hot young things and Bruce Dern. Um, <laughs> now, Bruce Dern is the traditional, what you've seen Oscar do a lot in the past, sort of, well, forever, but especially in the past couple of decades, is nominate the sort of elder statesman to whom they have never given an award and finally make up for that oversight. So, for example, Jeff Bridges a few years back uh, for Crazy Heart. I mean, Bruce Dern, in that sense, could be that figure this year, but it doesn't always go the elder statesman's way. It's very hard to call. Matthew McConaughey has been winning virtually everything going so far. Who would have thought a couple of years back that we'd be in this situation where Matthew McConaughey is one of the front runners for the Oscars. Having said that... Have you seen Sahara? <laughs> having said that, I mean, honestly, I, I'm not going to rule out any of the others causing what I guess would now be termed an upset. How's because... that fence? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sit on this fence because honestly, I think for me, the best the, the, the best performance is actually DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street. He absolutely blew me away in that. He's one of those guys who's been consistently good for the past 10 years. Uh, Ejiofor is, is just stunningly brilliant in 12 Years a Slave but it's a little bit more buttoned up and a little bit more internal and Oscar doesn't like things that aren't obvious traditionally so he might suffer for that and then Christian Bale in American Hustle put on weight which Oscar always likes you know um, horrendous physical transformer transformations seem to, to go over well with them and certainly that comb over counts as hideous so who knows I, I honestly I, I think it's going to be I think it might be McConaughey I think McConaughey is the likely favourite here but um, the big question is and if you've seen Captain Phillips you'll know what I'm talking about where the shit is Max Martini <laughs> lantern jawed Navy SEAL legend Max uh, Martini should did, be what? did you possibly mean Tom, Tom Hanks? Hanks there no, you go no yes. he means Max Martini but you've got the wrong film wrong cast for Pacific Rim oh. for his role as Herc yes. silly name Hercules that's him Hannibal him. Hercules. That, that guy from the Herculator where is Gypsy Danger in this category? That's Gypsy what I Dangers want to know. in the best. Yeah. 
best Jaeger robot Jaeger <laughs> category. Anyway, well, yes. let's bring it all back home, shall we? Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Yes, I think I don't know. I will be honest, I don't know. I think they've just left him off because <laughs> they that was a fantastic performance. And what I liked about it, in contrast with Bruce Dern, is is quite dialed back, but deliberately so. Tom Hanks is really underacts. He underplays the part in in the service of the film and the story. And uh, he gets his one Oscar scene at the end, yeah. and it blew everyone that saw it away. It's a remarkable piece of acting. I, and uh, on the basis of all of those things, I think he's worth a place on this list. Yeah, I, I don't often get angry about Oscar nominations or omissions, uh, but honestly, how is Hanks not on this list for Best Actor? That last scene alone is yeah. just stunning. And I can only assume, and I tweeted this yesterday, but I can only assume... That Oscar, uh, the Academy members, they tend to get a lot of screeners. Who knows? Maybe they switched off after he got rescued. Well, that movie's over, right? Done. Or I'm done. Or they weren't paying attention or something. I cannot fathom this at all. The rest of the performance is brilliant. It's understated. It's, you know, it's very, very naturalistic. But that last scene, he mm-hmm. just is like, he just knocks it out of the park. Robert Redford, also for all his loss, I think in the old man's loss, should replace Bruce Dern. Um, and, Apparently um, he didn't campaign, basically. He didn't campaign and the movie so. didn't do well. But neither did Nebraska. Yeah. So, mm, yin and yang, really, I guess. Uh, but that's such a shame, and I might have to go back and amend my review of the movie now, because I talked about him uh, almost certainly getting an Oscar nomination in that one. Anyway. Uh, Tax so, the clones at the same time. Yeah, I've got a feeling McConaughey may, may take that one as well. We're racing on past original screenplay and original song, sorry, you two, um, to Best Director, Steve McQueen, 12 Years a Slave, David O. Russell, American Hustle, uh, Alfonso Cuaron, Gravity, Alexander Payne for Nebraska, Martin Scorsese or Scorsese for The Wolf of Wall Street. I think this one's going to be Alfonso Cuaron because in terms of, you know, directing achievement, in terms of, you know, directing art, I think he kind of, you know, I think he did something brand new and very innovative and very dangerous and very risky this year uh, with Gravity. And I think you can't look at that film and not think... How the hell did he manage to do this? I think I think he's got to get some love for that. So I th- he's my front runner. That said, Oscar has a horrendous habit of you know missing great uh, great work when it has to do with technical things. Um, and of course, that film involved a huge amount of effect, which Oscar generally doesn't understand. So that would be the only way that I can see him not winning this one. And of course, I mean, don't get me wrong; these are. Five incredible films, five incredible directors. I'm not going to be an angry if any of them win. My question with that is, that do they really understand how he directed it? Yeah, well, this is it. Do, do they, they know? Yeah. You know, because it's not a film where he's on set working with the actors doing all. It's a very different well, sort is, of proposition. It is, but in a different yeah. way, using you know magical do do hickey majiggies <laughs> that they don't necessarily understand especially as you know you're talking about the slightly older maybe pre-effects members yes and also many of them are actors and therefore they don't sort of uh they don't give credit for for the fact that you're juggling 16 different things at once when you're making that kind of a movie um so yeah i i, I agree that that's that's my only kind of caveat in in giving mm. him the award prematurely well i think that's a good question because obviously before Clooney signed up it was going to be robert downey jr wasn't it playing mm-hmm. the role but he couldn't do it because his acting style wouldn't work with the sort of constrictions of the of the way that the film was shot no paul greengrass which is the biggest oversight for me that film did not direct itself those ships did not get in that, <laughs> that water by themselves not saying that paul greengrass drove the ship Built the ships. Water, but, or built the ships himself but he I thought I wouldn't put it past him uh, that's the biggest oversight for me and I probably would replace on that list David O. Russell 
Ooh, controversial. From that list. But, I mean, if, if American Hustle is, you know, given how well it's doing, it's clear that they, they love that film. So mm. you can see why he's there. He's become something of a perennial, hardy perennial. Uh, we didn't mention, by the way, Idris Elba uh, for uh, Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom. The feeling there is that he was kiboshed by the film itself being not that great. Yeah. Okay. Best film. Nine nominees. 12 Years a Slave, American Hustle, Captain Phillips, Gravity, Dallas Buyers Club, her, which really hasn't gotten love in any other category, uh, um, apart from best uh, original screenplay. Uh, Nebraska, Philomena, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Well, the the oversight, which we haven't mentioned the whole way along and we could have done, uh, is Inside Lewin Davis um, for me. So that's, we've, that's because we've, we've been waiting. We've, we've been waiting. Right we've been saving it up because honestly... Um, yeah, it could have been up for director. It could have been up, should have been up for actor as well. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal film. What I'm, I've, I said this in the news story, but what I've decided that I want to think is that Oscar's decision to completely overlook Inside Lewin Davis, apart from cinematography and uh, sound mixing nominations, is thematic. Uh, Lewin's life is all about failure uh, and and missing out on opportunities. Um, and therefore, so is its awards performance at the Oscars. That's, that's it. Either that's the or, or only it's a acceptable explanation. Shia LaBeouf esque performance art piece. <laughs> You're saying you can't have a cat in one arm and the and the in the Oscar in the other. That's that's essentially what I I'm see. saying. I mean, obviously, also missing out. I think Saving Mr. Banks was expected to maybe be in with the chance earlier in the season. And then, um, people, then people saw it. And then it didn't quite make the grade here. Other years, I think, in a, in a less strong year, it would have been in there. So yeah. I think it, it, it is testament to how good this year is. Yeah, uh, I think I think you're right. I think Inside Llewyn Davis, for me, is the big oversight here. Um, yeah, that film's fantastic. And it's 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 crazy, because you could have talked to supporting actress. Could have been Carrie Mulligan, yeah. uh, supporting actor. Justin Timberlake? Maybe? <laughs> I don't know. He's barely the, in the it. Cat. Come on. John the cat. Goodman? John There's Goodman's two fin- cats. John Goodman is fantastic. He in that is, film. yeah. Um, really, really, really good. And Oscar Isaac uh, for, for actor. And it's a shame that none of the songs in the film are original. Okay, let's actually talk about Best Picture for a second. Charlotte Booth. Right. Um, traditionally, the winner of the Best Picture Oscar, and now this isn't obviously a rule, this is just statistically... What seems to happen? The winner of the Best Picture Oscar tends to have a nomination for Best Director. And ever since 1981, all of them have had a nomination for Best Editing. The Helen O'Hara theory. Yeah, that makes it a little dull, to be honest. I like like the wild card. Well, no, well, okay, you like the wild card theory, but let's, you know. A movie that hasn't been nominated. Has that ever won? (laughs) Inside Lewin Davis is going to win. Anyway. (laughs) A movie uh, that hasn't been edited. Okay, that would be an interesting thing to see. (laughs) But this year, I mean, to be honest, it doesn't actually give us any exciting results applying my little formula because that makes the three frontrunners for Best Picture 12 Years a Slave, American Hustle and Gravity, which, duh. So, you know, I'm I'm not saying it it, it actually illuminates the, the, the field particularly, but certainly if you don't have a director nod as well, if you don't have... Uh, an editing nod and to a lesser extent if you don't have a screenplay nod which actually gravity doesn't then that can somewhat hamper your chances of winning best picture so you're saying and I'm agreeing that the best picture will not have the best director attached to it I think this year that it probably won't Mm. I think that gravity will get its sort of recognition probably in director and visual effect and, and that kind of thing and that film probably will be 12 years of slave or American hustle now it's very early days we're still there's still a lot of campaigning going on 
that might Let's change. Let's be honest. But Philomena, don't bother turning up for best film. Oh. What are you doing? You, mean, you look lovely, but go home. Five stars. Uh, her, go home. Nebraska, nice try. Go home. Dallas Buyers Club, maybe. That's a big surprise for me, I have to say, because I thought that film was merely good. Mm. Um, uh, An American Hustle. It's strange. I'm detecting a bit of a backlash in the uh, certainly in the office yesterday. A few people were going, "How has that film got ten but Oscar nominations?" We, How's we it don't vote. Yeah, but, but we felt the we same way. Vote. But we felt the same way about Crash. You know, and it's not about predicting what we feel. And I, quite frankly, I think it's a good film, but I totally don't think it deserves to win Best Picture. However, because I have my my favourites, but in terms of prediction, it looks like it has a win behind it. Is it going to be one of those movies where, again, perfectly serviceable film, really enjoyed it, very good performances, well directed, well acted. But is it going to be one of those films where we look back like Crash mm. in years to come and go, hey, what won the Oscar in 2014? Oh, mm. What was it? Oh, that was your oh, Gravity came out. Yeah, it was Gravity. Oh, no, it was 12 years. Yes, oh, it's going to be that film. I think it's going to be that film. We are a little negative about it in the office because there's, there's no one that's really championed it in the same way that we all felt strongly about 12 Years a Slave. I would love to see 12 Years a Slave win best picture I've got a feeling that it's going to be American Hustle and I just changed my mind from what I said two minutes ago I think maybe <laughs> look at that <laughs> David O. Russell will win best director as well um, wow. just off the back of you know Silver Linings Playbook as well got a lot of Oscar love he didn't get much recognition for it maybe there's a sense that it's his time uh, I didn't think it was you know virtuoso direction in that film particularly but um, no, I just I just have a feeling but I have a feeling that it's uh, it's American Hustle time. But, uh, you know, as I say, even on my, you know, little formula, there are still three films in the running. And, uh, and of course, technically, there are actually nine. So we shouldn't call it for anybody just yet. But and it it's is. not too late for another film to enter the race. Well, I mean, it is. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's cute that your can-do attitude extends beyond the realm of reality. Do you think Chris Hemsworth was tempted to throw his own name into the mix at any point? <laughs> Yeah, for best actor. Best actor, Chris Hemsworth for Thor: The Dark World, and everyone. What? Not Rush? No, <laughs> Thor: The Dark World. That would be uh, a lovely thing. To or think. you could have thrown Rush into the mix. Rush is a perfectly fine film that was overlooked. But anyway, anyway, uh, let's move on. Uh, as ever, there will be tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of Oscar coverage on EmpireOnline.com in association with Sky Movies over the next how many weeks? Four to, four to six weeks. Four to six weeks. So you yeah. guys should probably get, we a, have, get off and get on that. We already have um, uh, some stuff up. We've already got the how did they do it? Look at the visual effects nominees. We already have all of the best song contenders up. So and there's going to be much much more coming over the next few days and weeks. So do check that out. And the address again? What empireonline.com. Yeah, that one. Yeah. That's it. Go there. Uh, okay, so moving on now. Time for a second interview. Uh, James Purefoy came at the pod booth last year to talk about his new TV show, The Following, in which he plays a Hannibal Lecter-esque serial killer. And he was such a delight, so unlike Hannibal Lecter, in fact, that we couldn't wait to ask him back. And with The Following about to launch its second series on Sky, we jumped at the chance. So here he is once again, talking to Phil and Helen. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, a returning guest, James Purefoy. Hello, I good to have you. I this is my third one. Wow. Wow, <laughs> what I've done. I feel like a regular on your show. We were thinking that because your friend Jason Isaacs has mm-hmm. this 
has this legendary status on, a, know, on how another. How did that happen? I don't know. Well, it, ha- it, it happened. <laughs> we have to deal with it. But you but do. We would like that. you to be our Jason Isaacs, so we'll just shout out okay. to James Purefoy. Yeah. That that would be nice. <laughs> There's no... got a lot of catching up to do with, with him, though. I mean, he he bores me about it incessantly. <laughs> Does he? Yeah, as if it's just the most normal part of life. I go, that's just really irritating. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of catching up to do with them, but I think together we can make this happen. Good. <laughs> I don't know Good. what's involved from your point of view. There's no money, obviously, but there is all incredible kudos. Yeah, attached. kudos and, and just a, a cracking good laugh because it's always nice coming here. <laughs> oh. That's very nice of you to say. Thank you. So, I mean, the following is starting on Sky in yeah. January, isn't that Indeed right? Indeed it is. Uh, January 21st. And just to, just to explain for people who haven't come across it, you're... Uh, Serial killer. Not in real life, I hasten to add. <laughs> I hasten to add. I am indeed a serial killer. In the, If you didn't catch the first season, in a nutshell, Joe Carroll, the character I play, is an English college... He's a British college professor at a college in um, America. And he exp- his expertise is in romantic poetry, and specifically Edgar Allan Poe. And we meet him at the beginning of the first season, banged up in prison for the slaying of 14 co-eds. Uh, he's been put in prison by Kevin Bacon's Ryan Hardy, an FBI gentleman. And then he escapes from prison and they re-get Ryan Hardy to come back in to consult on the case. And it slowly dawns on the FBI that he has managed, that Joe Carroll has managed to have access to the internet while he's in prison. And whilst doing that, he has um, pulled together a huge group of other serial killers. Not just serial killers, but um, people who have violent fantasies, people who who perhaps occupy that very rather dark netherworld of um, of um, you know of sexual fantasies about violence. And uh, these people will do what Joe asks of him of them. See, this is why it's better that when people use the internet, they just look up stuff about cats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jason Isaacs, when he did Brotherhood, was saying that he, you know, he rarely found TV shows in the US kind of edgy enough. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, I think with The Following and maybe Hannibal as well, like mm-hmm. network TV is, is kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit. It seems to have gotten a bit more violent than it used to be. And a, yeah. it seems to be kind of pushing those limits. Yes, it does. And I suppose, you know, that's an attempt to try and stake some of the cable crowd yeah. and the ground that, you know, I mean, obviously uh, violence in itself does not a cable show make. You know, you still have to have great writing and great characters, and that's really important. Um, you know, and I think one of the things we're doing in the season, this season, is expanding the characters and uh, letting people actually just sit and talk. Yeah. It, without recourse to, <laughs> as I say, ripping somebody's eyes out every five minutes, they, the show feels more mature this season to me. You know, it's less needing to shock. Having said that, that's not to say that we don't have our massive switchback moments of jaw-dropping, um, <laughs> jaw-dropping a violence or b just things that happen that you think I just never saw that coming. Yeah, you know, people watch our show. there's there's some great YouTube videos of people who set cameras up to film themselves watching the following and to show what they do when they're watching it they're hugging cushions or you know or hands flying up to mouths or squealing or that that kind of stuff it's become a kind of thing to do is to is to film yourself watching our show 
You should film yourself watching your show. That would be like <laughs> substantially you better. My, you should film my uh, my my girl watching the show. <laughs> really? That's even more alarming as she watches the show, horrified, terrified, and then turns to the person on her right, who is the killer. <laughs> That must be tough in a relationship. Yeah, but that is tough on a relationship. Yeah, she found she found it quite tricky. Do you have like you have a safe word or something? <laughs> <laughs> um, you now I know you're friends with Dominic West, and he lives in the same mm. part of town as you. Yes, he was prepping for to play another serial killer. Yeah, did you have like evenings in the pub where you were just sort of one upping each other? Because <laughs> no, he did that first before I took this on. He started the sort of the craze, if you like. But one thing we did talk about was how. It's a curious thing. I mean, you know, it's the same. It's it's, it's a, what you call gallows humour, isn't it? That the darker you place you have to go, sort of in your imagination, and between those three or four minutes between action and cut, can produce the greatest laughs. <laughs> you know, because it's it's just it's one of the, it's just a simple fact of human nature. I think it's probably a protective thing. Mm. That you know, you find yourself giggling about things sort of <laughs> in a nervous fashion. <laughs> Because you're shooting something that is very, very dark, and you know, and certainly, I mean, and certainly this season, I've had to do a few things between action and cut, which have unsettled me and made me wonder about whether we should be doing them at all. But really? um, you know, I leave that up to our program makers. But <laughs> you know, it's uh, but I often it's just the, the time that you take between action and cut to do something, and then of course it gets edited and chopped, and music added to it, and it becomes served up to the public in a, a more palatable way. But um, you know, you occupy a very dark, dark place often. So, so what do you do when you when you go home? Like, do you watch do you, do you watch TV yourself? Do you watch sort of exclusively sitcoms at this point, <laughs> just to get it out of your head? I watch The Voice <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in reality TV. I am slightly obsessed with. There's a show in America called Duck Dynasty, or Duck Dynasty, as they would say. <laughs> I'm slightly obsessed with that show at the moment. Um, but also, I watch a lot of you know. I watch a lot of these. You know, I watch um, House of Cards or, or Game of Thrones or. Uh, Oh, you know the really good things, Breaking mm. Bad. But you know, I think I we are we have a great thing at work with with great drivers, uh, teamsters, who could not care what happens on set about what happens between action and cut. Couldn't be less interested in it. What they want to talk about when you between when you slough off Joe Carroll. Uh, and you leave the studio, you get in their van, they want to talk about, you know, the traffic or the game or politics or whatever it is is going on, the mayor, whatever's happening in the city at that time. So by the time you're delivered home back to your family, who frankly just need you to be dad, yeah. mm. and they just need just somebody to come in and brush your teeth and do your homework and whatever it is you've got to do, um, you know, I can't be going, <laughs> in, going in thinking too much about Joe Carroll. You know, yeah. I, I just need to be me. So Duck Dynasty instead? Duck Dynasty is, <laughs> is, my, is, my, is my channel of choice. Wow. Now your co-star, Kevin Bacon, he mm. is, he's become, he's achieved a state of ubiquity in this country yeah. through oh, some of his I ads, gather. as well I as the, the following, which I think a lot of people love because the six degrees of separation, mm. is it six or five? I can't six. remember. Six. six. Now everyone has a degree of separation because he's always on TV doing these ads. Now I gather that you, he called you to get all of the different British cultural reference points straight in his mind because he didn't really know Coronation Street yeah well he did know those things we did have to go through a few of those things I wanted yeah. to know how you explained Noel Edmonds to him <laughs> well you know you have to try to, you have to transpose don't you did you get into like Blobby and all the backstory yeah Blobby but you have to go he's your country's version of oh, I can't remember who it would be who would it be in America 
Would it be is Bob? It Regis Philbert? Not even Regis. Mm-hmm. Bob Newhart. Would it be somebody <laughs> like that? I was thinking of Bob, who's in um, yeah, Happy Gilmore, who's on The Price Is Right. Right, exactly. Maybe yeah. someone like that. Yeah, but, but the transpose transposition is okay. always useful. Gotcha. But yes, and then but trying to explain Mr. Blobby. Yes. And you know, and and uh, crink, crink, what was it? Crinkly bottom. Crinkly bottom. <laughs> Crinkly bottom is tricky. I don't know that there is an explanation for Mr. I, Blobby. I don't think there is. You maybe I just got maybe I got a photo up for him <laughs> to have a look and go. Well, this was his. You know, the guy he'd do the shows with. <laughs> But yeah, he did. He did. We did talk a little bit about that. Yeah, all those references. You prepped him well. He seems to really know what he's doing in the ads. I love him in those ads. He gives a hundred percent. You know, kind of cheesy ad, but he you would never know it from watching Kevin's face. He does it like a true pro. Um, has it been sort of because um, you've been on cable obviously before Rome mm. and so on? Have you noticed a difference between There's cable a huge and network difference. just in terms of the culture? Huge difference. Network is a very micromanaged um, mm. world, um, and a lot more people between you and the screen than there is in cable. Mm. You know, cable. It's. I mean, when we were doing the show, when we were doing Rome, we were pretty much left to our own devices. Or certainly, that's how it felt to us on the set. Between, you know, Bruno Heller, the showrunner, our executive producer John Malfi or Frank Dolger. Um, and us, and that was it. But you feel, you know, on our on our scripts that we get here on the following. First of all, you'll get a um, you get a network or a studio draft, which is Warner Brothers. Then you'll get a network draft, which is Fox. Mm-hmm. Then you'll get the production draft, which is an assimilation of all those things. There's a lot of fingers in that pie, and a lot of different things that have to happen. And there's lots of weird things like. Um, you you have to pull Kevin Williamson up on a line where you go, why is what's this line about? And you go, that's a recap, and it's put in there by the studio mm. for people who haven't watched it last week. Even a show like the following, which you are required really to have watched it last week, this isn't this isn't a um, procedural which is encapsulated in each uh, in each episode. You need to kind of know what have they? You know, our fans are people who watch it every week, so but they need to gather and pull in as big an audience as they possibly can and that's what it's about for them it's not about the awards Mm. it's about viewership because it's about advertising you know we are the padding between the adverts with that in mind though i mean it's 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 interesting that the following has survived in such a sort of unsparing format yeah in terms of the violence every way you think that that process you go through people would be wanting to tone it down tone it down tone it down and that clearly hasn't happened no i've not it hasn't happened because we have 17 million people a week watching it yeah you know which huge figures the violent the egg came before the chicken it did but you know they they like watching they like it yeah you know they like that darkness um and uh they uh, that's what it's about for them it's about ratings and if you've got Mm. 17 million people a week watching a show they're happy with what you're putting on screen yeah but yes but it comes down to the minutiae the tiny little details you know the clothes you're wearing the hair you've got the length of your stubble the you all the tiny little details that go into it are all about pulling together as big a big an audience as you can possibly muster mm. and you don't want to lose 10,000 people no. who don't like you know if 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 Joe Carroll goes unshaven one week 
then that might be the 10,000 people more than if he's clean shaven. And that's 10,000 people, that's advertisers, and they want to pull them in. So that's what I mean by micromanagement. So do you have to be very zen then about all this stuff? Yeah, you have to be very, very patient. Crikey. That's oh. what you have to be, is patient. They're not patient like... and understanding. Yeah. Understanding of what, you know, what, what is the raison d'etre of a network. And then there's, is to sell space. That's what, and you can't pretend otherwise. It's to sell advertising space. And that's not what you have on HBO or Showtime or any of the cable channels. They're, they're, just, they're not even thinking about that. Yeah. They're thinking about telling great stories and winning awards. Something that we, we often find ourselves talking about at work in terms of TV shows is the idea of this sort of overarching arc. You don't know necessarily where the show's going to end up, how many seasons you're going to mm-hmm. get. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to have those through lines that kind of mature, I guess. Yeah. And, and, and a show like Homeland we talk about that maybe hasn't quite translated that as well as it might have done from the first season. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, you know, when we did Rome, for example, when we did Rome, we had pretty much all of the scripts on day one. Wow. You know, and that's a massive difference. You I mean, ours are being written up until the, you know, the A of action. That's what often it feels like on our show. And we know where our show, on the following, we know where it starts and Kevin knows where it ends the journey between the a, a and z, a to z you know a and z are uh, the journey that, that you get there depends on a million different things you know they might be really happy with an actor who comes in who they thought was just going to do one episode but they love him and so they'll start building a storyline and suddenly he'll be on it for 10 episodes <laughs> and he thought he was just coming to new york for a couple of weeks and now suddenly he's there for six months or obviously they might get somebody that they thought was going to be a really big part of the storyline and they're less happy with and so they are slowly sidelined yeah and so the story takes a different course i guess it keeps things fresh (laughs) and it does keep things very fresh and also digital you know the way you shoot now that keeps things incredibly fresh Mm. you know because in the olden days you know i was when i started out as an actor i could always hear this which is the sound of film running mm. through the camera mm. and I remember when I first started always slightly panicking about that sound of that film running through the camera um, and going my god we've only got 11 minutes to shoot this take whereas of course now you can just shoot endlessly mm. and not only endlessly we sh- we talk about it as we're shooting it mm. so a director and you know, we have a great director on our one of our executive producers a guy Marcus Siega who is kind of the the, the, the you know the uh, the power behind the throne if you like he kind of created the whole show the way it looks um, and uh, the way it's shot and we do have an unusual way that our show looks in comparison to most network dramas you know we frame things oddly and it's unsettling the way we frame stuff but he will talk all the way through a take at us wow. with us and so there is that sense and because it's digital and all you're doing is changing a card every couple of hours that's it um, you, you, he can talk your way through it and do that line like this and look over there and, and it, it becomes very very spontaneous and mm-hmm. very it's very exciting working on it I really enjoy working on it wow was that the was it was I'm trying to remember if John Carter was digital or, or film. Film. film it was film no it was very much film it was very much film but the extraordinary thing about John Carter was they shot an entire animated version of that before we started mm. with sound effects cut with voices and music and everything so when they say you say how do you want this they just go to an ipod and go just like that 
we've got animated James Purefoy just yeah. do what he does <laughs> yeah. which is amazing absolutely amazing yeah well with the, the sheer scale of that one I was on set of that in uh, Long Cross I think and the yeah. sheer scale of it I guess you needed to have a certain amount of planning yeah, well, to yeah, make it all big time big yeah. time and were yeah. you disappointed that oh, people didn't go for it because I, I really enjoyed it but I was gutted yeah I was gutted because they're good people yeah they're nice people and Andrew Stanton is just a you know a prince among men mm. and uh something weird happened with that and it wasn't really to do with the film something odd happened and it started happening we all saw it starting to happen a couple of months before it even you know came out yeah you could feel this oh it's kind of tsunami of of negativity coming towards us that you couldn't and sometimes that happens with a film and it's just really unlucky you know, and can be you know one journalist who's got pissed off by something that somebody said or a piece of marketing that hasn't gone well or they've changed track on something <clears throat> and suddenly you can feel this thing happening right in front of your eyes and there's nothing you can do it's like an express train coming at you yeah it's interesting because we we were saying that sort of what happened to the Lone Ranger this year mm. and World War Z to a certain extent yeah but the Lone Ranger really suffered from it <coughs> and Johnny Depp and Jerry Bruckheimer came out and, mm. and, and basically said that the critics had caused that that film I think sometimes that can actually happen I don't know I mean I don't know whether that happened with John Carter I know that there's there's a weird thing with John Carter which is that it was a film that so many other myths and science fiction myths had come out of that film that it looked like we were copying mm. myths but of course you know nobody knew that this was the granddaddy of all and maybe that was a marketing problem that they hadn't flagged that up to the audience that out of you know that Superman came from there that Star Wars came from there that you know there were a lot of different movies had come out of that that story of the Edgar Edgar Rice Burroughs story um, so maybe that was a marketing problem I don't know you know but what I do know is I took that damn part because they said I know it's only a small part in this one but in the second movie. I was that we were discussing it yesterday, and I was kind of explaining. No, but he's like John Carter's best friend, know, best and they're going to have said, all these adventures. They said, you know, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. And at which point, my knees buckle because it's my favorite western and one of my favorite films. They said that's what it's going to be like in the second movie. It's going to be like Butch and Sundance. Oh, <laughs> we were going to shoot for eight months in Hawaii. This is the, <laughs> you're talking, the worst thing I've ever you're heard. You're talking to a man who has spent so much of his life shooting in less than hospitable places, you know, Bucharest or, you know, all of those Eastern European countries are, you know, beautiful, lovely countries, but they can be quite challenging to film in. And you think, that's no, fine, I'm going to do all these because one day I'll get the Hawaii gig. <laughs> That's heartbreaking. This is, this is tragic. In heartbreaking news, James Purefoy <laughs> exactly, tells us. Exactly, um, but that's the truth. I yeah. think we we need to let you go quite soon. But before we do, a couple of quick ones. Mm. Um, one, talking about westerns, I read that as a kid you used to wear a poncho yeah. to watch spaghetti westerns. Well, yeah, because Clint Eastwood was just my biggest hero. That's, did you have a mom, cheroot in your mouth? And My oh. mum, okay, so we're talking the 70s here, so this this was kind of all right in the 70s, but my mum made me out of a blanket, she made, uh, she cut a hole in the middle of it, made a poncho for me, and I was given a cowboy hat. But she would let me, when I was 12, 12, smoke cheroots. You're kidding, really? Whilst I was watching Fistful of Dollars. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you imagine, I mean, it's, it seems so bizarre now that you're allowed, that a parent would allow you to do that. But um, then it was, you know, as cool as cucumbers, give your son a cheroot. 
presumably nowadays a caring parent would like roll a fake cheroot out of a stick of carob or something, yes, that's right. something incredibly exactly. healthy. An no, electronic then, cheroot. No, it was completely cool and fine. Yeah, but I loved him. I loved his. I still love him. I think his his minimalism in front of a camera. There are certain actors who it's not really about a performance. I wonder if it's about geometry sometimes and just about angles on a screen, but there are things that they do which are just a pleasure to watch. He's just a pleasure to watch, isn't he? You know, mm. It's just the thing he does. Yes, we do love Clint yeah. Eastwood movies in these parts. Um, and yeah. you're a massive Nando's fan. Do you have a Nando's black card? Do you know what? They've never offered me one. Please, can I have one? Dexter Fletcher says he's got one. I bet you he's just got have to one. meet the guy that runs Nando's. I know. And he'll well, give you why one. haven't I got one? I'd love one. I'm a Nando's fan mainly because it's my the, my son's meal of choice. Right. So if he wants to go out, I go. Where do you want to go, Nando's? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's well, that can be our that can be our goal. Yes. To find you in the Nando's black card. card. Yeah, would be good. That's a happier note than Hawaii. James Purefoy, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely, lovely James Purefoy there. How was he, Helen? Should we have him back for a third time? Och, he's lovely. Let's bring him back. Did you just say fuck, he's lovely? Och, oh, och. It's a cultural problem there, sorry. That doesn't sound anything like the F word. Liberty gibbet. That's, that's three. Only Flipperty 503 gibbet. to go. <laughs> 502. I've really got to pack them in over the next really? 25 minutes. Liberty gibbet. Uh, okay. Movie Flipperty Gibbet reviews time now. Not a lot of movies around this week, so it's a good thing that the major release is such a Flipperty Gibbet. Uh, it's The Wolf of Wall Street, the latest collaboration between Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a three hour epic that charts the rise and fall of Jordan Belfort, a sleazy Wall Street trader, as he gets drawn into a lifestyle heaving with bacchanalia and excess. It's caused some controversy in the States, which we'll get onto later on. But for the now, what do we think of this? Helen, I'm looking at you. Yeah. This is Tell me things. Bleeding marvelous. This one is. Uh, so it starts off with a very young Jordan Belfort uh, getting his first job on Wall Street. Actually, it starts off a little bit later on. It starts off with where he gets to, and then kind of flashes back to him as a young trader. Uh, Does it say, I hesitate. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a trader. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, it's very much along those lines. If there is a comparison in the Scorsese oeuvre, then it's definitely uh, Goodfellas. There, there's no question about that. But he he starts off. I mean, I hesitate to use the word idealistic about any stockbroker. Uh, but perhaps he's along those lines but he swiftly falls under the spell of Matthew McConaughey who's really only in it for about a couple of scenes but makes a hell of an impact um, as someone who tells him really what's what on Wall Street Jordan unfortunately you know comes to brokerage at the time of the Black Friday crash so swiftly loses his job and has to kind of work his way up which he does through less than entirely legal or laudable means and the rest of the film basically charts his rise and this isn't much of a spoiler, fall. Uh, so it's it's an incredible, incredible uh, tale. And it's very, I think it's very, very deftly handled by Martin Scorsese. I mean, this is a three-hour film that feels like it's under 90 minutes. It's so fast-moving. It's so well-paced, I thought, anyway. And um, a great, great performances. I mean, to be honest, at this point, it seems almost superfluous to say that, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is a really good actor, but he's a really <laughs> good actor. I mean, my God. And I think he's got any kind of, you know, Oscar baiting that was in his system out of his system with the kind of slight disaster that was J. Edgar. Um, this is him just being good. And it doesn't feel like he's kind of waving a flag and saying, hey, look at me being good. You know, it feels like he's just genuinely brilliant as this character. And the character is is 
just incredible, just horrendous. Genuinely, the worst person I think I've ever seen on screen. He's worse than Hannibal Lecter. Really? Oh, he's just awful. Worse he's Phil. Oh, well, oh, oh, come on. Yeah. I haven't seen him on screen though. Um, Successfully worse than me. I would say. <laughs> but yeah. you know, he is he is venal. He is corrupt. Uh, he is debauched. He is a drug addict. He is. Uh, I mean, selfish doesn't begin to cover it. Uh, Who are we talking about here? It's still Jordan still Belfort. Jordan Belfort. If it applies to other people in this room, you know, I'm not saying. Um, but it is, it's it's just an incredible performance. Im- immense support as well from the likes of um, Jonah Hill, um, from Kyle Chandler, and from Margot Robbie. Now, I think because none of us had really heard of her before, because she's a bit of a newcomer, we all kind of assumed that she was kind of a dolly bird, an extra, essentially, you know, just one of these gorgeous girls that they try to launch on the back of a big film who doesn't necessarily have a very big role. But I, in fact, she, she really does, and she, she's got some serious... Uh, Serious acting chops on screen. Helen, far too modest to mention, but she wrote a really, you wrote a really interesting blog that's worth looking at on the website about this film, where you argued that it was, well, you eviscerate the film really, and those people that think it's a celebration of excess, I think, should have a read of that first of all when they've seen eviscerate it. Eviscerate in a nice way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, e- a, it's a good the character. piece. Eviscerate the character, but there are people that are coming away saying, "Oh, look at this! This is a celebration." And I've been thinking a lot about why this film has become so controversial, especially in America. I think we're just one step removed geographically and um, socially, I guess, from this world. And I was thinking, my, I've got a theory. Do you want to hear my theory? Yeah, please. My theory is that a lot of the people that have really hated it, and a lot of the critics that have hated it in particular, are people that basically live and work under the shadow of Wall Street and have seen what's happened in the last few years and hated the fact that nobody's gone to prison for it and hated the fact that nothing's really changed in America and hated the damage it's done. And and this film absolutely echoes those things from a different era. And the fact that it's gone full circle and still nothing's changed, I think, fills people with resentment and frustration. And intelligent people who are liberal-minded, like a lot of film critics are, from Village Voice and, and, and David Denby from, from The New Yorker, have, have taken this film down because they think, well, it's three hours where it doesn't really go anywhere. You know, you see these things and it's funny. It's a black comedy um, in the spirit of, uh, of an American psycho. Um, you know, bits of Wall Street, the first Wall Street film. Um, but, you know, nobody really gets their comeuppance mm. because they don't in real life, yeah. you know. And the fact that the names have been changed to protect the guilty, in all cases except Jordan Belfort, who's happy to put his name to this film because he thinks he looks like a hero, shows how little self-awareness this man actually has. Um, I think Scorsese, uh, or Scorsese, um, <laughs> is a bit caught between two stores at times in this film. There's times when he's really, really letting, letting, laying into them without spelling it out. And there's other times when I think there's a bit of him that actually quite enjoys celebrating the ridiculousness and it tips towards, you know, maybe people find it difficult and unpalatable. You do get a sense of that as well in his mobster movies mm. as well, Goodfellas and Casino. Um, you do. And, and I, The Mean Streets. Mm. And there's a sense of... And he's admitted it in interviews. You know, when he grew up uh, in New York, uh, idolizing these. There's a, there's an element of idolatry in these movies, uh, and it's interesting to see that some people have said that that has been transposed to this movie. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think there is a bit. You know, it depends your perspective on how much you think there is. Mm. You know, he is condemning them, but you know, there's two Scorseses, isn't there? There's the one who made Kundan and, and the Last Temptation of Christ, <laughs> who's an Eastern, a Catholic, and there's one who made, you know, Mean Streets and Goodfellas and grew up with these people and grew up in New York and and loves the vibrancy and the energy which he brings to his films himself yeah. and was himself. For a period in the seventies, a coke addict, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
I think. I mean, I think that's all true. I think. I mean, we should. We haven't said yet, and we probably should. This film is hilarious at times. This is a very, very, very funny film to watch. Belfort and his cronies um, have a very solemn business meeting, uh, discussing what exactly, contractually speaking, they can do to some uh, midget performers. I mean, th- that's a funny, ridiculous. I mean, and also horrific concept. Um, so it, it is a very funny film, and and it, therefore you are inclined sometimes to laugh. Uh, at these people and it's never and, and there are moments where it's not clear if you're laughing at or with them I, I absolutely admit I think there's an, an element of having its cake and eating it but I genuinely think that overall this film is is very much sort of Scorsese the almost priest this is Scorsese the Catholic and I, I do think there's a there's a really strong thread of condemnation going through it and also it would be intellectually socially historically dishonest to suggest that people like this get their just desserts because they do not um, people who are mobsters might do, but you know, the wolves of Wall Street are still among us. Just look around you. Indeed. Not in this room. Look at these successful <laughs> alpha people. Not in this dull, grey, horrible, soul-sucking room that we're in. The but people yeah. think, yeah, it's not dull and soul-sucking, is it? It's pretty soul-sucking. It, we had Nicholas Nicholas Winding Riffin in last year on the podcast talking about Only God Forgives and saying he's glad that people hated his film. You know, he'd rather <laughs> they hated it than they just thought, oh, that was a film, nice one. Yeah. You know, I saw that and blah, blah, blah. He wants those reactions. And I'm sure Scorsese would be happy that people are upset about this film, as well as people that, you know, like us, we gave it five stars, have absolutely loved it. Mm. Um, I'm probably more of a four star person personally, because I think it's a little over long. And I think there are scenes, I know, well, look, we disagree <laughs> on this, and that's absolutely fine. I mean, what? you know, that dwarf, when they're t- talking about the dwarf tossing, I feel that he's already made that joke, you know, because the film opens with actual dwarf tossing. So there's a bit of times when you're like, actually, it's. It's funny, but you made the joke, push the narrative forward. And the best scene for me has Carl Chandler and Leonardo DiCaprio on the yacht together. It, that was one scene that was just pure greatness, I thought. It's interesting saying you felt it was over long because uh, the original cut of this movie was four hours long. Apparently Paramount, you know, Martin Scorsese tends to have final cut, but Paramount went, no, no, we'd like, like to be able to show it more than twice a day. In fairness, like the original cut of The Expendables 3 apparently right now is four hours long, as we discovered in our... Q&A with um, Sylvester Stallone we attended last Saturday. To be fair, I think most uh, first cuts, most completely rough first cuts of movies are about four hours long, but I think this was an actual yeah, cut enough. that he wanted to release <laughs> at four hours. Uh, and I, I'd love to see that film. It's the one hour quaalude yeah. deleted scene. <laughs> just when they're moving. It's just a two-page dialogue scene. It takes uh. an hour for them to get through. Uh, I would just say on the, on the length thing, it is his four, I think it's his fourth longest movie. And it's 15 minutes longer than Goodfellas. And I would simply say, you know, if you watch Goodfellas, do you not feel a stronger sense of narrative progression, more time passing, more things happening, more character development than you do in this film? Maybe. I'm not sure it's as good as Goodfellas, I will admit that much. But I, I genuinely didn't look at my watch once, wasn't bored at, at any point during this film. So I, I honestly, I, th- I would totally go with our four, five stars on this. I thought it was terrific. Indeed. Five stars for The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, welcome. Well, I was going to say return to form for Martin Scorsese, but he's he's been in a right these last few years, hasn't he? Okay, next up is Tim's Vermeer, a documentary about the efforts of inventor Tim Jennison to replicate the painting techniques of Vermeer. Interestingly enough, this is directed by Teller, the normally mute half of Magic Duo Penn and Teller. Penn Gillette, he's the big tall guy, cameos and friends, it's the encyclopedia salesman who sells Joey the the fee volume for just 50 bucks. What series is that? That is... Joey's in the song. Please, I got to be two. Four. Good. <laughs> well done. I, I, I'm saying you're correct. I don't know. It's probably three. I imagine it's four. <laughs> I imagine it's four. Hey, what's Chandler doing in that episode? What's the, anyway, what's the letter? Fee. 
Carry on. Okay, moving on. Um, yes, hello, Phil. Tell, Hi. tell me about this film. Hi, everyone. What are we doing? The live show's going to be great, here? isn't it? Oh, God. <laughs> it's going to be me going, uh, what are we doing now? Is it time for news? Yes. Okay. Yes, let's do news again. Thomas Kretschmann has joined <laughs> Avengers Age of Ultron, or is it known in Poland? Let's do tips, yes. Avengers Age of Ultron. <laughs> oh, paper. I'd love to see the Polish uh, poster for Avengers. Do they oh, still they do, do weird great. posters the Polish in Poland? Do great. They do great posters in Poland. Ali's are... Do you, have, you, have you seen any recent Polish movie posters? did a pitch quiz you should check out where you have to work out. Type in uh, Polish posters, Empire Online pitch quiz. And where I took the posters and we, you know, digitally removed the title if it was obvious. And you have to work out what film it's representing. So, for example, Jaws does not feature a shark. So, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It's so weird though because um, the other the other week I googled Chris Hemsworth, Mark Ruffalo, poll and nothing came up that I was expecting. <laughs> was, it, was it nipplier than you thought? Did he <laughs> link through to one of Helen's blogs? Rather surprised. <laughs> oh come now! Why am I being tired oh. of this brush? Yuck. At some point we should probably tiring, review. Eh? <laughs> we should probably review Tim's premiere. Uh, Phil, what have you got? That's what we're doing. Okay, I really enjoyed this film. I have to say, uh, it's very lively. It's very zippy. It's an 18-minute documentary, so there's not a lot of there's not a lot of fat on it. But what you what you actually see, what emerges from this, is a really on one level, it's kind of a fascinating debate about what Tim Jennison, this Texan this Texan uh, brainiac, is trying to prove is that the reason why Johannes Vermeer's paintings, and if you know anything about the history of art, uh, the Dutch master in the 17th century, he, he's known for his photorealism. Now, I went to this film knowing very little. I knew that Scarlett Johansson, he painted Scarlett <laughs> Johansson once or something. Other than that, not a lot, but his paintings have an amazing nuance of light and shade and colour. And, and uh, uh, Tim Jemison, who has no real artistic experience whatsoever, just posited, or took a, took a theory from uh, partly David Hockney, the British painter, has suggested that Vermeer was using camera obscura, some of the technology that really, you know, was there at the birth of cinema as well, and a lens to be able to basically trace and have, have virtual sort of photorealism. He could see what the model or whatever the, 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 the composition he created on the wall and it could reflect, invert through a mirror onto the page so he could actually look through and paint pretty much exactly. Um, almost like he's working in sort of a post-production house, pretty much. Um, so the film talks about, shows him doing this, and he has this incredible um, urge, not just to not just to paint something that's an almost exact replica of Vermeer's The Music Lesson, but also to recreate the entire composition from scratch. So he builds all the furniture from scratch. He uh, he has a hilarious scene where he gets his daughter, who's come back from a tough a tough t- semester at college, thinking she's going to have a good time with her friends. Oh no! Her dad puts a puts a head in a vice, dresses her up as a 17th century Dutch maiden, and makes her sit there for about I don't know two weeks whilst he whilst he paints her uh, using this mirror and uh, whatnot doohickey. Um, so he's uh, it, it's a sort of almost a depiction of obsession as much as it is tackling these other things. But it's you know is it going to be this year's uh, Sugar Man that kind of documentary that's just a really kind of quirky story told very sharp very smartly by by Teller mm-hmm. with Penn and he's kind of he's a beefy dude Penn and they go on this they go on this kind of excursion to meet David Hockney so Penn's in the smoking. movie Penn is very much in the movie is Teller in the movie you see Teller he is famously taciturn so he doesn't say anything I, I, interesting enough uh, he was um, part of a Hollywood Reporter roundtable of documentary directors uh, recently and he speaks for the first time ever I heard Teller speak it just sounds like a normal guy he doesn't um, speak in like a sort of like like um, this squeaky dude in Toy no. Story no 
doesn't tell that. No, he doesn't. No, so okay, he just okay. But, yeah, well, if you want to hear Taylor speak, you can go on and check out that roundtable. It's very interesting. Anyway, he does a good job with this with with the pacing. As I say, it's kind of it's kind of zippy and it's fun and it's really interesting and and it's good for laymen. And I think people that are exercised by this stuff and a lot of people are because they think that actually, Vim, Vimir, it says that Vimir was cheating, basically. Is he cheating? Because he's actually... It's, is it paint by numbers? It's kind of not paint by numbers, obviously. He's brilliantly, you know... He's created the composition. He's create, He's replicated it perfectly. I mean, it's another level. But you do see this non-artist doing this thing. And it's mm. astonishing how good he is. He's never picked up a paintbrush before. He's made all the paints from scratch. He's gone to Delft in the Netherlands and learned how to make paint. It, it's just next level next level stuff it's fascinating it's really fascinating and and uh, i guess if it has any flaws it would be that if you're looking at it from a from this kind of art versus science debate you never really hear anyone come on and say you know what you're saying that vermeer is a cheat or you you know you you are diminishing vermeer's work here um and putting the counter argument and also in the last half an hour or so you see him grinding through hundreds of days of just working on the dots of you know and it is like watching paint dry it is watching paint dry 100% and he makes that joke in the film um, but it does slow down the narrative a little bit mm. so those are my only reservations but I really recommend it I mean hasn't had a lot of hasn't had a lot of pre-press uh, but it deserves a look and uh, I would uh, I give it four stars I would give it four stars I would check it out if you can fantastic four stars for Tim's premiere and uh, next up we have the found footage horror I know I know but give this one a chance it might be good it's Devil's Jew, in which a young couple experience a pregnancy that might, just might, have a slightly satanic tinge to it. <laughs> Helen. Hello. This one was uh, this one was embargoed until pretty much day of release. Make of that what you will. Uh, but yes, it's uh, a satanic cult uh, are observing this young couple who are obviously thrilled. They've basically fallen pregnant on honeymoon. All seems well. Um, so you've got the contrast of these rather gushy home movies going, oh look, we're having a baby, to these you know really sinister kind of CCTV pictures of of people watching them strangers are watching them and something's going on it's made by two of the guys who who worked in one of the segments of vhs it was one of the better segments of vhs this one is is not frankly up to that standard it feels like they've padded out a, a kind of a short story you know something like rosemary's baby it felt like it warranted being feature length this one i think is a little bit more trouble kind of justifying itself justifying it, it, it you know going to that full full kind of length the scares are just okay it, it doesn't really have that sense of building dread which i think you really really need for something like this and also you know for if you're making a horror about pregnancy that would seem to be the obvious kind of hook to hang it on that build up towards the end the sudden kind of rush of terror as as it as it goes on um so it's it's not terrible it's not as bad as the worst of the ones out there but you know it's it's Kim described it as entry-level horror in his review, and I think that that's probably right. It's just kind of... It, it feels a bit by the numbers at times, so we give this two stars. Blimey, O'Reilly. So there we go. Two stars for uh, Devil's Due. Yeah, it's interesting, this movie. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I, I have seen the trailer, and it's hard for me to take it seriously because um, one of the guys who... I think he plays a doctor like who's, who has sinister premonitions or he's involved in it somehow, and he's the same guy who plays the doctor who delivers... Uh, Phoebe's triplets in the 100th episode <laughs> of Friends. He's a guy. He's a doctor who comes in and and it's one of the clumsiest bit of writing in in all of Friends, where he just 
comes in and announces apropos of uh, nothing that uh, I love the Fonz. He's the doctor who's obsessed with with Fonzie. It's just rather clumsy. I've always felt it was quite clumsy. Now, if he'd come in during this film and announced I love the Fonz. Now we're talking. We would have been back on what track. What if it's the same doctor? <gasps> That's what I'm asking. What if Friends and Devil's Due is in the same universe? <gasps> <laughs> Isn't it automatically better? Does that automatically make it good? <laughs> that is the best thing I've heard for I, I've just realised before I heard the podcast, I'm going to have to watch that episode and make sure we live up to that. I'll just have to walk on our way through the films and go, you I wish, love the fun. Films just, you wish were in the same universe. Just watch Comedy Central for three days. It'll turn up at some point, guaranteed. Uh, two stars for Devil's Due. Uh, also out this week is the magnificent Robert Mitchum classic, The Night of the Hunter, uh, in limited release. Uh, around the country I believe do go and see it if you can and uh, wonder lament in fact why it remained Charles Lawton's only foray behind the camera uh, it is of course unforgettable Robert Mitchum is the evil preacher pursuing uh, two kids he's got love and hate and it's no tattooed in his knuckles and uh, he is evil personified one of the characters I think one of the top 20 in our 666 greatest horror movie characters of all time it is absolutely a stonking film reminds me of that, that awesome Wells quote about never work with children animals or Charles Lawton <laughs> I've heard it before really <laughs> yes. amazing yeah. uh, maybe that's why he only directed once <laughs> um, five stars uh, understandably for Night uh, of the Hunters so go and check that one out if you haven't seen it before uh, and that's it for this week's Empire Podcast join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be joined by the star of Inside Lewin Davis Mr Oscar Isaac and the director star of Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit Mr Sir Lord Baron Kenneth of Branagh Looking forward to that one. Should be fun. Uh, until then, it is farewell from Helen. Fare thee well. It's farewell from Ali. Goodbye. It's farewell from Phil. Polski. <laughs> you just say the word Polish <laughs> in Polish. I mean, that's just really weird. Well, people Polse. know where I'm driving at. I don't know. I'm early. I'm new to it. All right. Bye. I don't know what goodbye is in Polish. Learn it. Learn it. Use it next week. Uh, and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to say Liberty Gibbet approximately 487 more times. Something like that. Liberty Gibbet. See you next week. Bye.